Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and I am pleased to welcome back, I think, the uh, the person that's been on the show more times than anyone else, uh, writer, director, film historian, Jim Hemphill. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks for having me again. Thanks for doing this so quick. This is, by the way, this is a quick turnaround for us. I think we did the the, uh, the Michael Mann one less than two months ago, I think. That's a really quick turnaround for the Icon series. It is. Well, usually I'm, I know, and, and that's often I'm the one who slows things down because I'm so obsessive about these things. When I, you know, whenever I talk about a director, I want to, I always want to revisit all of their films because invariably, you know, when I do what I did with the Michael Mann thing where I watch, you know, starting with his TV movie, The Jericho Mile, up through, you know, Black Hat, it's always fascinating to me to watch a director's work in order and sort of see the different patterns that emerge and all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, however, with Nolan, I feel like uh, this is a podcast in a way, in one way or another, I've been preparing for this for about 20 years. So I feel uh, pretty, pretty, pretty well prepped. And, and we're going to get into some of that, too, because I've been following, you know, your writings about Nolan over the past six, seven years. And, and this has been mm-hmm. one of those uh, icons episodes that I've been really chomping at the bit to do for a long time. And I I think the discussion we had, uh, you know, probably a year and a half ago about no, about Nolan was let's wait until Tenet comes out and then we'll we'll tackle right. tackle this one. So, Jim, I'm going to ask you the question I ask you every time we do an Icons episode. What does the filmmaker Christopher Nolan mean to you? You know, I think it's a bigger question with Christopher Nolan than it is with most directors because his movies are so much more complex in some ways than most directors, and you know, there's there are a number of things. I respond to in his films, and there are a number of things that he kind of stands for. I mean, in a way, he's the canary in the coal mine for me in terms of Hollywood studio filmmaking. He's kind of the last man standing in terms of being a great auteur who is also hugely commercially successful. I mean, you have to kind of go back to Hitchcock almost to find someone who so consistently connects with the audience yet is doing something that is so completely their own. I mean, Christopher Nolan's movies, even though, even though you could argue that his movies are within certain genres, I mean, the Dark Knight movies are comic book movies, and Inception is a heist movie, and Tenet is a spy movie, but really they all, it's, it's really gotten to a point now where they're all Christopher Nolan movies. I mean, he's, he's one of those directors like Tarantino or Hitchcock or to a certain degree Spielberg who, you know, they, they are almost their own genre, but I think he, more than anyone else has somehow managed to do that in a way that again just connects with a global mass audience in a way that no one else can i mean nobody has nolan's track record commercially every i I, correct me if i'm wrong but i think every single movie he has made has been commercially successful, which is not something Spielberg can say. It's certainly not something Hitchcock could have said. It's not something Tarantino can say. And yet, he's got this massive popularity doing movies that are often very experimental. I mean, you know, movies that are certainly doing very unusual things with time that that ask a lot of their audience. I mean, there's a kind of assumption, I think, that if you're going to play to a global audience, you have to simplify things. And he's kind of proof that that's not necessarily the case he's the kind of the you know and and or he's the exception that proves the rule depending on how you look at it but i think in a way he kind of uh you know gives hope i mean there are there are and there are other directors who do too i mean i don't want to make it sound like there's not a lot of directors who aren't doing great movies at the studio level but 
just the fact that he can continue to do these movies at this level of ambition and this level of scale and with these resources and, and all that is, is really kind of inspiring. And he's somebody who, another thing that makes him kind of unique, I think, is that he does do these movies that are on this massive level of scale with huge set pieces and some of the most jaw dropping action sequences that you can find. And yet his movies are also deeply, profoundly philosophical and emotional and ask big questions about time and what it means and, and, and why we're here and how we relate to each other and, and, and what heroism, heroism is and all these. And he asks these, yes, these, these big, big questions. And yet his movies also, you know, I read a description of, of, I think it was Interstellar once where somebody described it as a minimalist film by a maximalist filmmaker. And I think that kind of gets at the heart of his greatness is that he is both. He's both this guy who's great at the kind of stripped down, intimate, deeply personal moments and also uh, can scale stuff at the level in something like Tenet that makes a James Bond movie look like my dinner with Andre. <laughs> That's good. Uh, let me ask you this, Jim. Uh by the time that we get uh, Nolan's first couple of movies, 98 through 2000, you're already th finished with film school, correct? Yeah, I, I'm exactly the same age as Nolan, I think. He might be a few months older than me, but I think we're we're somewhere around the same age. So when – oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. I was going to say, so when did Nolan come on your radar? Uh, well, I think I can lay claim to being aware of Christopher Nolan before almost anyone else, because I became aware of Nolan before I ever saw any of his movies. Uh, in the late 90s, I was working, after I got out of film school, I was working as a script reader. And one of the companies I was working for was this Japanese company that would basically buy the Japanese rights for American movies. And they would do it at the when the movies were at the script level, like basically... Uh, somebody like Nolan, who was looking for financing, he might get a piece of his money from this Japanese company in, in exchange for the Japanese rights or whatever. So I read the script for Memento somewhere around 1997-ish or so, or 1998. I, I read, and I distinctly remember it because it remi remains to this day the greatest script I've ever read on the page. And, uh, you know, I read I'm not exaggerating. I mean, I was a script reader for many years. And so I read thousands of scripts and very rarely did any ever stand out. I mean, I'm, I, and part of that is just has to do with my lack of imagination. I have to say I'm a, I'm a terrible script reader. I really can't. Uh, I, I generally can't see what the movie's going to be from reading someone else's script. I mean, I'm, you know, I famously, you know, I'm the guy, another script I read for that company was Brokeback Mountain, which I passed on. Because I just didn't get, you know, I read the script and I just didn't see anything there. I did not know what those actors were going to do with it and what Ang Lee was going to bring to it. I mean, I loved the movie when they made it, but on the page, I was just like, what is this? Who cares? So anyway, point being, it took a lot for a script to blow me away. And I read the script for Memento and it just, it just was completely bowled over by it. I thought it was brilliant. And, you know, I can tell you everything the movie Memento does it was there on the page and it was clear and that's no easy feat. I mean, it's, you know, to, to tell that story on paper and not make it confusing. But I read the script somewhere again around 97 or 98. And, you know, I was at the time an aspiring filmmaker myself and, you know, aspiring screenwriter, all that kind of stuff. And I read it and just couldn't believe 
how great it was and took took immediate notice of this guy and thought to myself, my God, I, you know, if this ever gets made, I can't wait to see it. You know, I think and and all the things that made the movie great were there in the, in the script in terms of the combination of it being both kind of formally inventive, but also having this very deep emotional anguish kind of at the center of it. And so I thought it was fantastic. And then fast forward to a couple of years later, I go to the Sundance Film Festival in, I guess it would have been maybe January of 99 or something like that. I think it was 99 that it maybe it was 2000 that it premiered at Sundance, but whatever year it premiered at Sundance, um, I guess it was 2000. Anyway, does it, whatever year it was that it premiered at Sundance, I went to see it there. And I feel like I was going into that screening the way someone, you know, the way a Marvel fan would go into like, uh, you know, Avengers Endgame or something today. Like I would, that was the most highly anticipated movie of the year for me. And nobody else even knew what it was. I mean, nobody like, you know, everybody. And, and it's, and the funny thing too about that screening, you know, I, I saw the movie at Sundance and was as blown away by the movie as I had been by the script, you know, maybe even more so. Um, but, you know, famously, that movie did not get bought out of Sundance. I mean, it's kind of a fascinating thing that this guy who did become one of the most commercially successful directors and one of the most artistically accomplished directors in the history of the medium, uh, you know, he left Sundance without a deal. I mean, he spent like a year trying to get that movie out into the theaters, which I'm getting off off of your question. But um, but I do remember very distinctly becoming aware of him. And I, I did not see his first movie following until after I saw Memento because it hadn't gotten much of a release. You know, it played in a couple of art houses and a couple of festivals, but that one I didn't catch. I caught up with that on DVD after I saw Memento. So Memento, the script Memento was my first introduction to him. And then the Sundance premiere was kind of where I really was like, this is a guy. I will watch anything this guy does. Before we get talk about following, uh, I just got to ask you, you know, you said you were, you were a script reader and Memento was the best script you ever read. As your job to read the scripts, like, w- what do you do? Do you do you pass it along up the food chain or how how does that work? Yeah, essentially, I was sort of like a lower level, you know, I, I'm I, basically I read a script and say and synopsize it, which with Memento was no easy feat, yeah. I have to say. <laughs> um you, you know, you said, I synops- write a synopsis and then basically a page of comments on what I think works or what didn't. And if, you know, and, and then if I like to recommend it or pass on it or it was like either pass, consider or recommend. And most of the stuff that I read was a consider, you know, because most scripts, there's something there that could probably be, be you know, done with, you know, or whatever. Like, but but a recommend was kind of reserved for like, you think this thing is just, you know no fail fantastic and that one i did recommend ironically i don't think the company i worked for uh agreed with me i don't think they ended up <laughs> putting it buying it or putting any money into it so but yeah i was just kind of i think mostly like the reader at that level i mean it's kind of one of the unfortunate aspects in a way of of the industry is you know basically if you are a filmmaker if you're a screenwriter and you're trying to get your movie made the first person who reads your script is probably completely unqualified to a certain extent. And I include myself in that assessment because most of the people who read these, there's so many scripts flooding in that just as a kind of time management thing, executives and producers and stuff, they all depend on these lower level readers, but these lower level readers, they don't pay them crap. And so, you know, you get mostly 
people who are right out of right out of film school if you're lucky some of them are not even didn't even go to film school you know i mean a lot of them are just these like 22 year old interns who don't know anything about life or art or anything else and these are the people who are like passing judgment on like you know i mean i would get scripts by you know david mammon i mean you know i'm like sitting here i'm the first you know wall of defense between david mammon and a a studio making his movie which when you think about it is completely absurd but that was part of the system i was in at the time is that a practice that still goes on to this day it's worse now it's way worse now because now they really now like everything they like in those days there at least used to be some places would kind of have, there was a sort of a professional level of reader. There were people at like the studios who would, would do it as like a kind of lifelong thing and were sort of trained in it and, and were somewhat erudite and intelligent. Um, nowadays, a lot of that has gone and much, you know, it, it's much like a lot of things. Um, a, a lot more work is done again by kind of unpaid interns who don't really know anything. I mean, I, I taught, a class for a couple of years. Um, I was teaching in a, the film school where I went that I went to in Chicago. They have a semester in LA program. And for a couple of summers, I taught a class, a film class there. And, you know, my students in these classes, they had internships at production companies. And they were the ones again, they were the ones reading the script and these students, I mean, they were nice, smart kids for their their age, or whatever. But I mean, they had zero experience with any of this stuff. I mean, these are kids who have never seen, you know, a Stanley Kubrick movie or an Alfred Hitchcock movie or whatever. And it's like, so yeah, it's, it's, it's worse now than it was then. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> Sorry for that. No, 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 I'm, you know, <laughs> me, I'm, I'm forever fascinated by the industry. So no, that's good to know. So let's, let's start with following. You mentioned that you watched this after Memento, but take me through, yeah. take me through following and your thoughts on the film. Yeah, well, following, I still think is, you know, a sort of model first film, you know, and for people, for people who haven't seen it, um, you know, it's a sort of low, very low budget. I mean, I don't remember how much he made it for, but it was, he was basically a movie he was making, shooting on weekends for a year or so on 16 millimeter black and white film. You know, this was, this was the days pre when you could shoot a movie on your phone. Um, and, you know, it's a sort of a, you know, typical Nolan esque, conceit i mean it's about this guy who kind of just starts following people around the city and ends up kind of getting you know following this guy who's a thief and it's sort of a a hitchcockian uh relationship these two guys fall into and uh, it's you know the tricky thing about talking about nolan movies is that they all depend so much on the element of surprise that it's kind of hard to describe the plots without giving things away so i'll just say it's you know it's a great it's a great kind of character driven thriller that is really, I guess what I mean when I say it's a model first film, is a movie by a guy who really knows how to design something for the resources he has. And, you know, and, and, and I would actually direct anyone who's an aspiring filmmaker uh, to the Criterion DVD and Blu-ray of following that's out right now, because it has a fantastic commentary track by Nolan, where he talks about all the things that he did that he could do on a low budget that would make them that would work for the movie. For example, shooting dialogue scenes on rooftops, because then you get like the scale of the whole city behind you, you know, but it doesn't really cost you anything. Um, and there's a lot of stuff, there are a lot of like sort of neat little tricks like that, that he, some of them are outdated now because again, 
he was shooting on film and most people doing their first low budget movie now would not do use use film but uh, but it's a really good kind of lesson in, in how to do that stuff. And I think it is, it's a really interesting little embryonic example of a lot of the kind of pre- preoccupations that he would develop on a grander scale in later movies. Do you see any of his signature characteristics in following that you would see later down the road? Like, is there anything that in following, I'm sure you've seen it multiple, multiple times, but is there anything in that film that makes you go, yep, that's a signature Nolan shot, a signature Nolan, signature Nolan dialogue, anything that, that you saw in that film that would carry on throughout his career? Well, I think there's a couple things. Certainly there's a, you know, he, his movies are often about characters, usually men who, you know, the, the, who are sort of in a state of uncertainty, or if they think they're certain about something, they really aren't. You know, a lot of his movies conclude with people finding out that something they believed is not, the opposite is true. And following is definitely, uh, sort of establishes that. And it also, um, you know, I mean, it establishes that it, esta- it establishes his taste for, playing around with cinematic time. I mean, you know, the movie is told in kind of this structure where it jumps back and forth between this interrogation kind of storyline that takes place after whatever you're about to see in the movie, whatever the movie's building toward. Um, and interestingly, Nolan, in this case, did not write the script that way. He Initially, he wrote the script just chronologically, and then he kind of shuffled everything up. Uh, whereas with obviously Memento and some of his later movies, the time playing was by design, by design from the beginning. But I would definitely say structurally, you can see right from the get go, this is a guy who likes to play around with time a lot. And that's, that's definitely there. And, and also this idea of kind of violation, because in the movie, the two lead characters, they're these thieves who break into people's houses, but they don't even necessarily steal anything. Like they'll go in and just mess around they'll they'll take like a pair of women's panties and put it in a guy's jacket so that his wife will find it and things like they're just sort of screwing around with these people's lives and there's this kind of that's kind of a thing that throughout nolan you get it again in in memento with the way people mess around with um leonard and you get you know uh and in inception people in a way are violating each other by going into their dreams and entering their subconscious and this this sort of idea of violation and of like shattering society and civil boundaries that becomes a big theme in Nolan's movies. That's there right from the beginning and following too. And I should say there's also a Batman logo sticker on somebody's <laughs> apartment in the movie. So uh, I don't know if he was thinking about doing a Batman movie right from the beginning, but it's uh, there's a little foreshadowing there. Let's talk about Memento. You, t- you said this was the most anticipated film that you've, you've probably ever seen at the Sundance Film Festival. And yeah, no question. you were not let down. You were not disappointed by the, the final product. And y- you mentioned that nobody even bought the film during Sundance. So you're kind of walking away from this film after you leave the Sundance Film Festival, knowing something that the whole world doesn't know yet. And that must be such an interesting, you know, situation to find yourself in. But but just take me through that first screening of Memento and then just please share your thoughts on the film. Uh, I mean, you know, the movie, again, the screening, in a way, I knew what to expect from having read the script. And the movie is very faithful to the script. You know, it's not something where he really changed anything. And you probably couldn't because it's such a Swiss watch of a movie. But, you know, I think the movie, what was interesting about it was seeing how he delivered on the emotional component of the script because you know something that's interesting about nolan I, i've come across 
criticisms of his movies where people call him cold the same way they used to call Stanley Kubrick cold. And in both cases, it's just total nonsense. Like I, I, I think what they mean by cold is just that his movies are, you know, they're very like clinically well constructed, but they're not cold movies. I mean, Memento is a very, very emotional movie and, and, seeing it at Sundance, you know, that was the part that was on the page that it was like, well, is he going to be able to pull that off in the movie? And he did largely due to the casting of Guy Pierce, who's fantastic in it. But, but it's funny because I do remember seeing the Sundance screening and it like seemed like it played well, but, but from what I've been able to gather from reading interviews with Nolan and things is that basically the reason the movie never found a distributor is because everyone had this attitude where they would see the movie and say, I love it, but I don't think other people are smart enough to get it. There was this kind of condescension like distributors had and kind of famously, you know, Miramax, the Weinstein had a chance at buying it. And that was their attitude. It was like, yeah, it's too, it's too smart for most people to get. And then when the producers self-distributed and the movie started making money, the Weinsteins like frantically tried to buy it and were told, nah, you know, you missed your, you missed your shot. Um, but there was a period, it was a long period I, where, after I saw the movie at Sundance, I was just telling everyone about it and I couldn't wait for it to come out so other people could see it. And it did take a while because of the fact that they didn't have a distributor and new market who had financed it just ended up deciding to distribute it themselves. And um, I remember that being, uh, it, I don't even know how many months it was. It probably wasn't as long as it felt like in my mind, but it felt like forever that I was waiting for peop other people to be able to see this movie so I could talk about it with them. Uh, and then by the same token, it felt like forever between that movie and insomnia before I could see another Christopher Nolan movie. Memento, from what I was reading, Memento had some pretty long legs at the box office. Yeah. I mean, it, it but, uh, you know, the notes I'm, I've got here is that during its theatrical run, it did not place higher than eighth and any list of highest grossing movies of its first single weekend. It says it was released only in 11 theaters, but by week 11, it was distributed to more than 500 theaters and ended up grossing 25 million in North America and close to 40 million worldwide. And right. so this, this thing was, you know, slow and steady wins the race, if you will. Did you get an opportunity to see it in the theater again? When it was released. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I think I saw it a couple of times because it, it did play a long time in L.A. Because L.A. was one of those first when it opened in those initial 11 theaters. I think a couple of them were here. And then it stayed here for that full 11 weeks, whatever you're talking about. So, I yeah, I saw it a couple of times. And, you know, because the interesting thing about Nolan, too, is some of his movies, you know, Memento. Again, I, I don't want to be I want to stay away from spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen it. But you know, Memento is one of those movies like The Sixth Sense or something where it has a finale that kind of throws the entire, makes the entire rest of the movie mean something else. Like The Sixth Sense, the interesting thing about Memento is that once you know the secret, it actually makes the movie better. You know, it's not, as opposed to, say, a movie like The Usual Suspects, which I would say, in my opinion, The Usual Suspects, once you know the ending, the movie, who gives a shit? I mean, yeah. it doesn't, it, you know what I mean? It's like, it doesn't matter. It's all a lie. So who cares? Um, whereas with the sixth sense and memento, they actually gain emotional resonance on repeat viewing. Um, once you know the secret and that, and so, so memento, you know, on the one hand, I, I say, I want to avoid spoilers. On the other hand, you can't really spoil Christopher Nolan movies because they actually, in a lot of ways, Nolan's movies teach you how to watch them the first time you see them and you have to see them again 
in order to really get what's great about them. I mean, Memento's like that. Certainly, Tenet is like that. Inception is like that. Unkirk is like that. Uh, Interstellar is like that. I mean, a lot of his... Basically, I'd say anything outside of maybe Insomnia and the Dark Knight movies is is follows that rule. Well, that's a that's a nice way to segue into Insomnia because going from Memento, very small budget film, great great cast, you know, and it's 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 endured over the years, and, and people love Memento, and I think it's an amazing film, and I enjoyed rewatching it this week. But it's one hell of a jump to go from Memento to Insomnia. I mean, we're talking about he's working with uh, two of the biggest, uh, three of the biggest actors at, at that time, Al Pacino, Robin Williams, mm-hmm. Hilary Swank. I mean, we're talking about a major Hollywood production by Warner Brothers and what would begin a, a long-term relationship with Warner Brothers. But I'm curious for somebody who was just watching the gestation period of Memento to go from Memento to Insomnia, which I'll start by saying I think is a fabulous film and I, I enjoy the hell out of it every time I watch it. Just the performances alone are worth the price of admission. Tell me about your your sort of transition from Memento to seeing Insomnia and what was your excitement level going into the film? Well, it was, you know, it was huge for some of the reasons you're saying, which was I was really excited to see what he would do with those kinds of resources, with studio money, with Al Pacino, with Rob Williams. I mean, and, and, you know, and this was still a period which I think, uh, you know, times have changed a little bit, but, but this was the early two thousands, you know, I tended to get a lot more excited about big studio movies than, than I do now. And not just because I've become an old fogey or something. I mean, I do think there was a greater number. I mean, you still get them now. You still get, you know, Quentin making Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and, you know, people still make great visionary uh, tour movies at studio level. But um, but what I don't think you get so much now is this kind of interesting mid-range that Insomnia represents. You know, Insomnia was not necessarily, you know, it was a, it was a well-resourced studio movie with stars but it wasn't like a $200 million movie and it wasn't designed to be for everybody. It was designed to be kind of a smart adult genre picture, which I do think those have kind of gone away. I mean, you get them every now and then you'll get a gone girl or something, but they're, they're, they're back then they were putting them out every couple of weeks. That was like part of the studio's bread and butter. Um, and I was very, ex- and I was a fan of all those kinds of movies. So I was very excited to see what, Nolan was going to do. I mean, I think Insomnia is in some ways, you know, a slightly atypical Nolan movie. And it's, you know, it's the only one I think that he doesn't have a writing credit on. I mean, he did a little bit of writing with um, Pacino once Pacino came on board. But for the most part, you know, the, the script was predated him. I mean, it's a remake of a great, uh, I can't remember if it's Swedish or Norwegian or whatever, but it's a, it's a remake of a, of a movie, Scandinavian movie with Stone Skarsgård. That's really fantastic. And Nolan had actually, when he saw the original, which came out, I think in 97 or 98, you know, he wanted to remake it from then. But at that point he didn't have the juice to do it. Like Warner brothers already held the rights and he was trying to get the job writing it. And they hired this other writer, Hillary, I think her name was Seitz. Uh, who ended up writing it. And then he by- basically was able to circle back around to it after Memento because Steven Soderbergh was a big fan of Memento. And Soderbergh and George Clooney were kind of riding high at Warner Bros- Brothers at the 
time and had a producing deal there. And so they said they would put their names on Insomnia if no one directed it, blah, blah, blah. But it's kind of an atypical Nolan movie in the sense that it is kind of, um, it is his most straightforward and traditional, you know, and I, and I don't mean that as a, in any way denigrating. I think it's a great straightforward traditional movie. Um, but as opposed to Memento, which is all told essentially, you know, Memento is essentially told in two time frames, one moving forward, one moving backward. Uh, you know, you, you get to, you get some of these later movies like, um, you know, the prestige is told in multiple time frames, going in all different directions. Inception is told in five, either they're basically five parallel stories in Inception that are all taking place at the same time, but at different durations. I mean, you know, Dunkirk tenant, you get where I'm going with this, it, you know, it's, and, and, and all that, that, that leads me to something else that's interesting about Memento, which is when Memento came out, you know, it was part of this whole cycle of American movies. Uh, I don't know what, I can't put my finger on it. I've never really analyzed it to figure out why this is. But the late 90s and early 2000s, you saw this enormous spate of American movies that were all concerned with kind of pulling the rug out from the audience and from playing with our idea of what reality was, whether it's The Matrix or The Sixth Sense or Fight Club or, God, I know I'm, there's, there's a whole bunch of them. I mean, there's, sure. there, yeah. there, there are many other, you know, you know, David Lynch was, you know, Mulholland Drive, Lost Highway, whatever. Um, and I don't know if it had to do with the emergence of the internet or what, because things started changing so rapidly. I mean, I don't know if you remember how fast the internet took off. I mean, to the, to, we're like, in a, it went in a few years from nobody really knowing what it was outside of scientists in the academy and the military to being a thing that ruled everyone's life. I mean, it was a, it was, a, it was revel, it was the fastest revolution I've seen in my lifetime. And I don't know if it's people were feeling on such shaky ground that they were responding to all these movies or what, but anyway, uh, long way of getting back to the point that insomnia is kind of a, in some ways, a traditional movie. And yet it still has these Nolan preoccupations again, in terms of, uh, characters being on shaky ground, you know, this whole thing of certainty in Nolan movies and how like nothing is really certain and how the ground is always shifting beneath your feet, literally in insomnia. There's like scenes where they're running across like ice and logs and all kinds of stuff. So there's uh, this, this, this philosophical idea of the ground shifting behind your feet, uh, beneath your feet is made physical in insomnia. And that, you know, that's another great thing about Nolan. I, I'll tell you something that I think insomnia introduces that becomes key to Nolan's work is he is a master of using landscape and the character's environments as kind of psychological projections of his heroes. So Insomnia, you've got this character played by Al Pacino, this like sort of dirty cop who is sort of at his wits end in every way. And, you know, he's just surrounded by this craggy, rough, rocky, landscape that he moves through and then you know you obviously all the other movie you know the batman movies they're all very different in terms of landscape but they kind of reflect what nolan's going for thematically whether it's the kind of slick sleek lines of the dark knight in chicago to this kind of concrete brutalism of the dark knight rises and you know so that and i think you know partly because he didn't have the resources before insomnia that's not as big of a thing in following a memento. But once starting with Insomnia, Nolan really, really pays a lot of attention to his production design and to the environments his characters occupy. And I think whether you're conscious of it or not while you're watching the movie, it really kind of adds to the emotional impact they have. And this is just a little side note uh, in, in Insomnia. 
I know we've we've discussed Robin Williams in the past, but what do you think of his performance in this film? Well, it's you know it's fantastic, and it's an interesting performance because there's this theory. You know, you could sort of read that movie almost. Uh, you know, Robin Williams and Nolan had discussions about this idea that the Robin Williams character might not even exist, that he might just be this like projection that Pacino's character is like seeing while he's kind of losing his mind from lack of sleep and moral bankruptcy and everything else. Um, but, you know, it's a great, creepy, uh, creepy villain. And, you know, this and this is another Nolan thing that um, Insomnia introduces that I think becomes prevalent in the Dark Knight movies and maybe some others, which, you know, is this kind of doppelganger thing where the there's sort of uh, the, the hero and the villain are sort of um, the only thing that separates them are slight moral gradations. You know, I mean, it's it's uh, and that's another sort of Hitchcockian thing that I think uh, becomes pretty prevalent in Nolan's movies. Insomnia comes out, uh, like you said. You know, a mid-range film, they don't really put them out too often anymore. Uh, on a $40 million plus budget break, it cracks the $100 million mark. So, that's a success by those standards back in 2002. Mm -hmm. So, Nolan's going to be uh, taking on one of the biggest projects, one of the biggest IPs out there at a time when comic book films, putting aside the X-Men and uh, the Spider-Man movies, but the comic book craze had not hit yet. So, right. take me through your, your initial thoughts of, of Nolan, of all the directors out there, because we went from Tim Burton with two films, then to two Joel Schumacher films, which frankly had diminishing returns, but I think there's inherent good in all of those movies, to Warner Brothers just pulling the plug on the Batman franchise and, and, and doing a long, hard reset. So your thoughts on finding out that Nolan, of all people, is going to be doing the reboot of the Batman. Well, you know, Nolan coming in and doing it at the point where he was in his career was in a way pretty much identical to Tim Burton coming in and doing it when he did the first Batman, you know, I mean, Tim Burton was a really odd choice at that at odd and exciting choice at that time to do Batman. Cause you know, he basically just done some shorts and then Pee Wee's big adventure and Beetlejuice. And then Batman was this kind of, you know, huge jump from, uh, from Beetlejuice to Batman, which, you know, actually, which I kind of want to go back to something else you mentioned about the jump for Nolan from Memento to Insomnia, which is, you know, and Nolan has talked about this, but I actually don't, I actually think the jump from following to Memento is way bigger than the jump from Memento to Insomnia. And the reason I say this is because I know having, having made two movies that were kind of in scale analogous to what Nolan did, you know, when you make your first, like the first movie following, he made the way that I made my first horror movie, which was basically him, his then girlfriend, she became his wife, and maybe one or two other people shooting it on weekends and doing everything themselves, basically him doing everything himself. And then you went to Memento and had like an actual crew and professional actors and all that kind of stuff. And that is a that's a that's a huge, huge, crazy leap. Um, and I know from my own experience, then when I made my second movie where I had Leah Thompson and John Shea and again, had a crew and I mean, very low level. But still, like, it's a totally different form of filmmaking. Whereas I think once you get into that form of filmmaking, once you've got like a standard crew and the kind of typical military operation, the way that's all structured, then it just becomes it, it becomes a matter of scale. But 
but in a way, I don't know that. It, anyway, basically, I don't know that it was such a huge jump, except for the fact that he was dealing with Pacino and Robin Williams. And so, you know, once you get to that level of star, that's a whole different learning curve because, you know, they've then you're in a position where as the director, the star is more powerful than you are. So that's kind of a delicate political situation that you have to learn to navigate. But anyway, Batman Begins, um, you know, I was, again, very, very excited to see what he would do with it. Uh, a different reaction than I would have today, because back then, as you say, they weren't the comic book movies were not the dominant strain in Hollywood cinema. So they were still kind of exciting to me in a way that now when I hear a director I like is directing a comic book movie now, I get profoundly depressed. It's like, oh, we lost another one. <laughs> That's always the feeling I have. That's always the feeling I have now. I never like, you know, when I heard that. What was the one I or a comic book movie or even like these Disney franchises? It's like I heard Barry Jenkins is doing a Lion King two, and I was like, Are you "Kidding me? Like we've lost Barry too?" Like um, I, I, I just you know, I now it's just it's always utterly depressing to me if I hear that a filmmaker I like is doing one of these franchise movies because it's all they do, and and because generally I think with few exceptions. Ryan Coogler with Black Panther is kind of an exception, but in general, I don't think these film—I don't think filmmakers—they—they uh, they don't change Marvel. Marvel changes them. Whereas Nolan, he did change Batman more than Batman changed him. And I think the thing Nolan brought to it that was great was that he did—he approached it as you know, a realistic action movie. I mean, the Batman, you know, Batman begins and then certainly the sequels, you know, they, they fulfill the requirements of a comic book movie, but they're also very, they're geared in towards so much physical detail that they have a weight and a plausibility to me that say these Marvel movies where people are just chasing colored stones around all the time, you know, I could give a shit. I mean, again, it's like they, th those, it's not a recognizable world to me what I see in those movies. And that's okay. I mean, sometimes you go to the movie to escape the real world, but I think Nolan just has this like concrete physicality to his movies um, that he brought to Batman that, that for me, you know, I watched dark Knight rises again this week, knowing I was going to be talking with you. And um, you know, I just think honestly, nobody else comes close to what he did in those movies. And for me personally, just in terms of the, uh, the involvement I have in those Nolan Batman movies versus the involvement I have in virtually any other comic book movie. I guess I would say, I guess Joker would be another exception, which is also a movie that I think is very rooted in physical reality. And, and granted, that could just, that's just my bias. I mean, I'm, you know, that's just, I, for me to respond emotionally to a movie, I guess I have to have some kind of rooting in some kind of recognizable reality. And maybe there's exceptions to that, but that's, I think, what Nolan really, really brought to it that, unfortunately is not a lesson that I think many people have picked up on aside from Todd Phillips with Joker. Yeah. And, and we can talk a little bit about the, maybe talk about the three movies all at the same time, the, the dark Knight, the, the Batman trilogy, but I watched all three again over the past two weeks and the sense of scale that, that Gotham city has ascent, especially in the, the second and third film yeah. is on a different level. Now, you know, with the first one, it, I I don't know if he was sort of still taking some of the uh, some of the notes from the studio about what Gotham City should look like because it doesn't really have that that scale 
in the first yeah. one, and it certainly has a little, you know, a little more CGI to it. But with the second Dark Knight, with the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises, I mean, he he encompasses like four or five major American cities in, into one Gotham City, and it's incredible. Yeah, well, the scale thing is due to a couple of things. One, you were correct that on Batman Begins, I think he was still, you know, Batman Begins, he was a, you know, he was certainly somebody the studio liked. He had made the money with Insomnia, but he was still... He, he didn't have the position that he would have later after Dark Knight, where he was basically, basically could do whatever he wanted. Um, and there was a lot of nervousness, I think, about rebooting the Batman franchise because Batman and Robin had been considered in certain ways to be such a fiasco, although I don't think it's that bad a movie. But um, there was, you know, there was, I, think there, I think he had a lot more pressure on him on Batman Begins. Than he was later. But also, the scale thing is is very simple. And it is... And he kind of learned, he kind of wanted there to be this enormous scale right from the beginning. Like he talked, you know, one of the biggest influences on Christopher Nolan is James Bond movies. I mean, it's, it's there in the Batman movies, it's there in Inception, it's there in Tenet. And he wanted the Batman movies to have this kind of international scale that the best James Bond movies had. And on the first Batman movie, he was trying to get that largely through these enormous sets that they built. But he realized that you can only go so far with sets. Like, no matter what, you can have the biggest set a man ever built on Pinewood, and it's still going to have certain limitations. So when he did Dark Knight, he went to Chicago, shot in the streets, you know, uh, and, and other in Hong Kong and everywhere else. And that ended up giving that movie a kind of scale that Batman Begins didn't have. And I think... You know, you pointing that out actually makes me realize that maybe that's also a reason why I like his movies so much more than I like other comic book movies, because most comic book movies, you know, even the big ones, it's like they're all shot on stages, you know, and, and a lot of them are shot on stages just in front of blue screens and they paint everything in. And I don't feel like most comic book movies, again, have that scale that the second two or the second and third Dark Knight movies have. And I think it does have to do a lot with that location shooting. Um, that 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 he would do, and with with the, and again, that's something that would become also a big hallmark of movies like Inception and you know Tenet, which is enormous. Yeah, no, absolutely. That being said, take me through your first screening of Batman Begins, and and what were your initial thoughts, and and what did you think when you were finished with the film? I mean, I remember thinking, I remember thinking it was a great. Batman movie. And I remember liking it for the reasons I was saying in terms of it feeling more realistic and all that kind of stuff. Um, I do remember feeling like it was probably my least favorite Nolan movie up until that point, only because I think it is the one of all of his movies that has the most concessions to the, not the genre exactly, but the, again, it, ha it does have a few concessions to like, being a major studio franchise movie and having those pressures of rebooting Batman and stuff. And so I kind of feel like when you get into the third act of that movie, it feels like the third act of a lot of other movies. And most Nolan movies, I don't feel that way about most Nolan movies. I never feel like they feel like other people's movies, even when he's doing spy movies or comic book movies or whatever. So I really liked Batman begins, but it was probably, and probably remains to this day. I would say my least favorite Nolan movie, but my, my least favorite Nolan movie, but still one of my favorite comic book movies. Like it's still better than most everybody else's movies. Sure. Sure. And, and this, I want, want to emphasize uh, to, to the listeners here when Warner brothers, you know, reboots the Batman, I'm not even going to say franchise, just reboots Batman for a standalone mm -hmm. movie. 
this was not part of some planned, you know, multi-universe, you know, grand yeah. scale 20 movies. This was, we're going to make the movie. And, and, and at the end, you know, when Gary Oldman holds up the Joker card, you know, that's just a wink mm-hmm. and a nod to, to the Joker. This yeah. was not a planned trilogy. In fact, you know, the movie did good right. numbers. But it didn't do, you know, it wasn't a billion dollar film like The Dark Knight. Right. And I imagine it did well enough that the studio wanted to follow it up with a sequel, but no one wanted to do something else. And maybe we could talk about 2006's The Prestige because this is, this is him getting a huge budget. He's writing the script. He, he, this, this is his first real project on a grand scale. Yeah, although it's the same budget actually, I believe, as Insomnia. So I think it was. I think they were both forty million dollars. Okay. So it wasn't. It was actually, it, but like size wise, it was. It was probably a step backward after Batman Begins in a way. But um, but still enormous. I mean, it's an enormous movie for what he had. Like it looks like it's a movie that cost a hundred million dollars. It's 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 unbelievable. And um, yeah, and it's one that I think is in a weird way. Again, it was successful when it came out, but it, it's, I actually feel like the prestige is a little bit underappreciated. Like, I feel like it doesn't get talked about with his other ones as much as it should, because I think it's just an absolutely incredible movie. I mean, I think it's, and again, it's one, it's one where he really starts ramping it up, the whole experiments with structure and storytelling. And, you know, and I don't remember exactly, I don't want to get it wrong, but the prestige, again, it's a movie that sort of takes place across different different time frames and it's another one of those movies like i was saying before about insomnia where I, I mean i don't even know who i would call the hero and who i would call the villain in prestige i mean the hugh jackman and christian bale characters you kind of keep flip-flopping who is sympathetic in a way you know and, and it, it's it's like this very sophisticated shift in perspective that keeps going on throughout the movie um you know the interesting thing about nolan and time is he essentially with a movie like the prestige or a movie like inception or a movie like tenet where he is playing so much with structure and with the way the stories are told and is so self-conscious about it he's not necessarily doing something so different from what movies in general do he's just making the mechanisms obvious and explicit because like if you think about most movies do really wonky things with time. I mean, even like Nolan, Nolan talks about how if you watch a romantic comedy and you try to figure out how long the story is supposed to take place over, sometimes it's very confusing. It doesn't actually, it's not actually very clear about it. And like the, the ultimate example, I think, or just an example I can throw out is the movie Tootsie where Tootsie has like, on the one hand, the rise of the Dustin Hoffman character's popularity when he becomes this this soap opera star, um, like it seems like that is happening over the course of a year or two, uh, just by virtue of how fast somebody would become a star and based on like these conversations he has with his agent about contract negotiations, things like that. But then he also has this romance with Jessica Lange, who at the end of the movie says these couple of months with you have been the best I've ever had or whatever. And there's multiple things like that in that movie where it's like, how, how long is this supposed to be taking place? And like, it's actually just as weirdly convoluted as Dunkirk, if you think about it, but movies like that don't call attention to it. And so you don't ever, you don't get confused because you're not even thinking about it. And so it's funny to me when people sometimes another criticism that gets leveled at Nolan is his movies are confusing and they are sometimes, 
but they're only confusing because he's drawing attention to how movies play with time all the time. So you, yeah, you and you were correct. Prestige, forty million dollar budget. I guess just watching the film, and I should have looked it up, you know, before I made that comment, but on a much grander scale. But it just feels so so epic. Uh, it made uh, you know one hundred nine million dollars. So this is basically the same you know return on investment as Insomnia. I asked the question, you know, the prestige doesn't give him that momentum to where, and we're going to get to, you know, after the Dark Knight Rises where he can just continue to make whatever he wants. But with the prestige, he's not there yet. He's close, but he's not there yet. No, well, he gets there with the next movie. He gets there with Dark Knight. And I think the reason he's not there with the prestige, honestly, is because by that point, the industry was already starting to change. It was starting to change in that way I was hinting at where the big directors were basically uh, and partly because of movies like The Dark Knight. I mean, Nolan, in a weird way, in a weird way, the success of The Dark Knight, for him, made him able to do whatever he wanted and put him in this position where he could be one of the few, one of the last auteurs standing, shall we say. But it also, its success, what it did for everybody else, wasn't so good. Like, it, 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 it did also kind of firmly cement the idea that all the studios wanted to do were comic book movies or movies based on pre-existing material whatever and it's you know to the point that like again nolan he's really one of the few guys i mean you know because like james cameron and peter jackson you know you think about them they've basically now just become stewards of their franchises like these they you know james cameron i mean it used to be i used to be excited about james cameron movies the way i, I get excited about christopher nolan movies when he was doing when he would go you know do the abyss and and true lies and you know titanic whatever you know and he was always doing these sort of new original things now he's just going to do avatar movies for the rest of his life um and it seems like uh, you know uh, anyway um nolan and that i think uh nolan when he did the prestige even though it was successful there became this thing with the studios where making a movie for 40 million dollars that grossed a hundred million dollars was no longer the business they wanted to be in. The business they wanted to be in was the business. His next movie, dark Knight, would be, which is you make a movie for a hundred million or $200 million and it grosses a billion dollars. Yeah. Like that's where that's the business they wanted to be. in. that's definitely the business they want to be in now. Um, and so, yeah, so the prestige didn't give him that push, but then the dark Knight, which he made after right after that, and which he made with more freedom than he had had for Batman Begins. I mean, like, like he did at that point, the fact that every movie he had made up until Dark Knight had made money and the, and the Batman Begins was profitable. I mean, that all gave him a certain control over Dark Knight that he didn't have over Batman Begins, where I think the reason that the Dark Knight was so hugely successful was because they essentially let him alone and because he was able to make the movie that he wanted to make. And again, Nolan somehow... He just has that thing that what he likes and what he's obsessed with somehow connects with a global mass audience. And some of it, I think, is just pure luck. You know, the same way it was luck for Spielberg. I don't think Spielberg, when he made Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. and all those movies, uh, and, you know, I don't think he necessarily was being calculating and saying, I think this is what's going to hit. I think it's just people were interested in seeing the same thing Spielberg was interested in say, seeing at that moment. And Nolan is one of the few directors, if not the only director, who has been lucky enough that his entire career, everyone else has wanted to see what he wants to see or wants to make. 
You know, it's become cliche to say, you know, The Dark Knight's one of the great comic book films of all time. In fact, dare I say it's one of the great films of all time, and I, I believe that to be true. And I just remember sure. seeing The Dark Knight in the theater and maybe not even fully understanding, like, just how grand the film was, you know, upon first viewing. Like, it was just yeah. such a monumental shift in anything I had ever seen. Look, I saw... The, the three Spider-Man movies in the theater, the Sam Raimi ones. I saw the first X-Men movie. It was bored to tears by that film. And that's not a knock. If people are a fan of the X-Men films, great. Uh, just they're not for me. You know, I didn't mention that when I did see Batman Begins, I thought it was good. I and mean, it was a good movie. Mm -hmm. But The Dark Knight was just – it was just on a completely different level of, wait a second. This is not a comic book film. This yeah. is just a, 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 a different type of movie. Like I didn't I, – I don't – classify this as just your standard comic book film it, it just hit on so many different levels your thoughts on the dark knight uh, totally agreed i mean he's you know it's funny that the last conversation we had was about michael mann because basically with dark knight nolan's doing with the comic book movie what michael mann did with the action movie with heat i mean he is like taking it and just uh, building it to this almost mythological level and there's a number of things that you know dark i mean dark knight first of all when you say, well, it's a cliche to say it's one of the great comic book movies ever made. I mean, look, it's not a cliche. It's the greatest comic book ever made, period, movie ever made, period. I mean, I, I, that's just, to me, that is inarguable. I mean, yeah. it is, there's no, there's no other one that has that level of ambition and skill and complexity. And, you know, something that's fascinating about The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises is they both, I mean, and this gets to Nolan's true greatness, is they are both very, very reflective of their moment in time. I mean, they're both very reflective of the George W. Bush era. And like in the case of the Dark Knight, you know, this this was like a thing that was in the air, this whole idea of sur surveillance and fighting terrorism. And it's like, are we becoming what we fight if we take people's rights away and like all those kind of issues, the dark Knight very elegantly kind of weaves into the fabric of its storyline, especially at the climax. And then you get to dark Knight rises and it's very much a reflection of kind of the, the class tensions that were brewing in the country and occupy wall street and all that, which, which Nolan didn't necessarily couldn't have planned because while he was shooting, all that was going on. I mean, it just sort of, you know, he's had his finger on the pulse. But now the fascinating thing about those movies is that they are they are of their moment, and that's part of where they get their resonance, but they're also so prescient. I mean, something that Nolan saw coming that those movies have and that I think makes them even better now than they were when they came out is Nolan knew how fragile our grasp on civilization really is. Like, he knew that civilization is like this agreement we all make with each other that can fall apart very easily and very quickly. And I think like we see that now we've seen that in the last few years, you know, I don't care what side of the political divide you're on. I think we all have this sense that like our country is very, very, you know, delicate and very, very much in danger of, you know, sort of, fundamental things going away i mean that's you know and again i think people feel that on all sides of the political spectrum they feel like things that they took for granted are now being 
pulled out from under them. And the Dark Knight Rises, the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises especially, really tap into that anxiety. And I think you know the 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 uh, the Joker character taps into this. Well, both both movies tap into both villains tap into this anxiety too. Where you know, for me personally, I know. I used to always have this belief that was proven wrong um, that the system would kind of take care of itself. Like it didn't necessarily matter that much. Like it mattered who was say the president for sure. But if it was a president that I didn't agree with or who was enacting policies, I didn't agree with or whatever, like the train was never going to get that far off the tracks. I always thought it was kind of self-correcting. <laughs> and I think we've, and I think we've discovered in the last few years, that's not true. Yeah. You know, yeah. we've discovered that like, you can have, like you can have a crazy person in there and nobody's going to stop them. And that is like kind of what the dark Knight, the dark Knight movies kind of saw that coming. Um, and then aside from all that, they are, you know, the dark Knight is just such a Swiss watch of craft. I mean, the way that movie is built like it is a freight train. I mean, that thing starts off, you know, it starts with the scene that would be like the kind of big turning point in heat, <laughs> you know, yeah. you're starting with like a big, the big, a big action, the big robbery set piece is the beginning of dark Knight, And then it just keeps ramping up and ramping up and ramping up. And like, just structurally the way he spins all these different, storylines like little tops you know whether it's the, the arnett cart story and just different all these different things and the way he pulls them all together and orchestrates them is is masterful i mean there are very few other filmmakers who can do that the way he does and and also like just the way he uses you know something else that's always interesting about nolan is his use of music because his you know his movies often have like wall-to-wall music and and the way this sort of percussive music he uses that just makes it feel like these movies never stop. Like they're moving at such a faster pace than most movies. And yet then he also does something great, like in dark Knight, where he has that chase sequence uh, under the train tracks where he drops the music out entirely. And it's so effective because he's had the wall to wall music. And it's just all these little things like that. Like he's just so good with rhythm and, and so good with like moral, moral complexity that is also accessible to the audience. I mean, I just think, you know, and, 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 and being unafraid of, you know, just going dark, like people like dark stuff, but studios can be afraid of it. And there's, and you know, the dark Knight. I mean, that's, that's an unbelievably dark movie. I mean, when Aaron Eckhart is, has the gun to Gary Oldman's kid's head and says, lie to your, son tell him everything's going to be okay i mean that is like a grim grim moment for a mainstream movie but it's but it's fantastic and it's part of what makes the movie work i mean it's like why it's why kids like bambi and snow white too i mean you know it's just a yeah it's just a perfectly modulated entertainment machine that's also very smart about human nature and again reflective of its time it just just kind of has everything it's like the godfather of comic book movies yeah. and i mean there's no other comic there's no other comic book movie i would say that about i mean again joker comes closest for me but um they just don't usually have that many layers going on at the same time and i think part of why they don't is speaks to your point originally about how 
when Nolan, even when he was doing Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises, he wasn't having to accommodate like this whole multiverse or whatever, you know, it wasn't like, you know, he was just making his movies. And I do think, I know that for fans of comic book movies, that's part of the fun is the interlocking of them. But I do think sometimes you can lose something when a movie can't just serve itself. It has to serve six other franchises that are running alongside of it. I just think sometimes that you can dilute your intensity in a way that Nolan never had to do with those Batman movies. And that's the thing, because, you know, when you look at The Dark Knight, and uh, I actually have a couple questions here, but when you look at The Dark Knight, there's no end credit scene. You know, there's no stinger yeah. at the end setting up The Dark Knight Rises. In fact, and this would never happen today, there is a four-year gap between The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises. That is unheard mm-hmm. of for, for a, you know, a huge studio film that's, you know, obviously made a billion dollars and sequels, uh, sequels are inevitable. But before I bring you to why there was that four-year gap and what came in between it, to the best of your knowledge, do you ever recall a marketing campaign where they would release the, the opening the you know the first six minutes of the film uh, as sort of the opening trailer that's become uh, pretty standard for Nolan films. I know they did it with Tenet and The Dark Knight Rises, but that entire bank heist was released, you know, in a trailer format. Have you ever, did you ever see that before? Uh, my memory is no. I mean, I wouldn't say for sure that that never happened before them, but I don't remember it them doing it. And it, and you know, in that case. That was a whole fascinating thing, too. Something else that I think people lose sight of, you know, the reason they did that was sort of to, you know, Nolan is really the guy who's responsible for launching the IMAX format as being a viable delivery system for big studio feature films. I mean, you know, IMAX used to mostly be used for like nature documentaries and things you would go see at museums and stuff like that and, you know, immersive things, whatever. And, you know, Nolan was really the guy who saw this potential for actually shooting. You know, he the whole reason they did that thing with that blog was they wanted to sort of show people what IMAX could do. I mean, I think the prologue was only released in IMAX theaters. Yeah, yeah. I believe and that. he shot it and he shot it. You know, he shot that whole thing with IMAX cameras as opposed to like, you know, a lot of movies you see them in IMAX. They weren't really shot in IMAX. They were shot in normal digital or 35 or whatever, you know, cropped or blown up. Um but, you know, he really was the guy, the success of the Dark Knight movies, especially the Dark Knight, is really what kind of launched IMAX as like a format for, uh, you know, mainstream Hollywood features. But I don't remember. Yeah, I, to my in my memory that I don't remember ever seeing that kind of thing of like putting an opening few minutes of a movie as, you know, almost a trailer or something out before the movie that that. That's again, it could have happened, and I just don't, you know, somebody will probably, and I'm sure if we're wrong in saying it's the first time, somebody will tweet at us and sure. let us know. But, uh, <laughs> but that's the first time I remember. That's the first time I remember it happening. I don't know the whole story, but I'm sure Warner Brothers were telling Nolan that probably, you know, prepare to back a, uh, uh, you know, dump truck full of cash, uh, on his lawn to do a sequel to The Dark Knight as quick as possible. But by this point, he has the ability to say, no, no, I want to do what I want to do. And this is how we get Inception. So this, okay, so this is what I meant by when I was talking about the prestige, having, you know, all the clout in the world, having, you know, basically an unlimited budget and some of the biggest mm-hmm. actors in the world. And this is the first, I don't want to say it's the first, how do I describe it? This is the first, my brain is is trying, it hurts for me trying to describe 
watching Inception the first time because this is the first time like because it wasn't a established property. It wasn't a you know based on a novel. This was this was all all out of his imagination. And the movie, mm-hmm. like I saw it three times in the theater. I had to. Mm-hmm. Uh, just take, mm-hmm. take me through Inception, and 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 if you have any comments on on you know the power he had to say a Dark Knight sequel will have to wait. I'm doing my thing first. Yeah, well, and again, I think you know the Dark Knight. Uh, but that's a good, you know another point too about those Dark Knight movies is you know sometimes great movies need a little bit of time to kind of marinate, and I don't think you get that when you know, studios pick release dates for movies before they have scripts, which is what often happens with the Marvel movies or the Star Wars movies or whatever. Um, and he was in a sort of position, I think, after Dark Knight, where they were willing to wait for the next Dark Knight movie and, you know, give him the one he wanted to do in between. Um, because again, you can't, you know, Dark Knight, that, you know, it's still rare for a movie to make a billion dollars. But back then it was like almost unheard of. I mean, I think when Dark Knight did it, you know, uh, probably the only two movies that had done it at that point were maybe uh, Titanic and Avatar. I'm not sure. But, but yeah, in, in Inception, I do think you get, you know, that's what you get when you get a movie. I, I, you know, I feel like I love seeing, I love seeing what directors do when they're coming off of a massive hit and they just go for broke, you know, and that's kind of what Nolan did. And they don't always do it. You know, sometimes they, they go the other way and they want to protect what they've done and they just kind of stay playing it safe. But, you know, Inception is just one of those movies that I still, much like a lot of his movies. I mean, basically Inception, I feel like is the, the beginning of Nolan, like doing something totally risky and with no certainty whatsoever that people will go along with him. And yet the audience does, they follow him every time. Um, because Inception is essentially like a 1960s European art house film done as like a $200 million action movie. I mean, it's essentially last year at Marion Bad done as an action movie. And, you know, it's, I always think about this. I'm always trying, like, trying to figure out with Nolan what it is about him that people are willing to go along with him on those rides at such a kind of widespread level because, Again, movies are, you do need to see them more than once. I mean, a movie like Inception does teach you how to watch it the first time you see it. And a lot of times people get frustrated by that, you know, and I'm sure, you know, we'll get to Tenet. And I think Tenet, he may have pushed it to the point where, uh, you know, he, he may have snapped, finally snapped the rubber band with Tenet to a certain degree. But, you know, you do have to watch, you, you do have to watch Inception more than once. You know, you do have to, I don't know if you have to watch Dunkirk more than once, but it sure helps. And, Somehow, and I guess it's just that he's so skilled, I think because Nolan has this taste, like he really loves James Bond movies, and he really loves like, you know, I, I don't know, he, 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 he has a, and he loves Raiders of the Lost Ark, and he has like a, he has like a genuine fondness for some of these very accessible forms of entertainment, and I think the fact that he kind of coats the pill with those you know, I think a lot of people watch Inception or they watch Tenet and they don't necessarily need to understand what's going on because just what you're looking at is so cool. I mean, when you're watching Joseph Gordon-Levitt in like the spinning hotel room or whatever, like that's just cool for its own sake, whether or not you understand what's going on. And frankly, from my point of view, I don't understand what's going on half the time in half of 
big studio spectacle movies. I mean, I, you know, cause I don't go like every time a new comic book movie comes out, I don't go back and watch like all the previous Marvel movies or whatever. So sometimes I'll go see something, you know, like I'll go see an Avengers movie or whatever. And I'm like, I don't know what they're talking. I don't know what's going <laughs> on here, you know? Um, and I don't know if anybody else does either. Maybe they do, but I, I, you know, and, and like, you know, I went and saw the new Fast and the Furious movie the other day. And I mean, if you haven't just watched all the Fast and the Furious movies right before this, you're not going to know what the hell's going on in that movie. But it doesn't matter because you're watching two guys strap a rocket to a Pontiac Fiero and drive it into space. <laughs> so it's like that that is cool enough by itself. You don't need to understand the story to like watching Ludacris and Tyrese drive a Pontiac Fiero into outer space. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And, you know, they, so, so I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I haven't seen the movie. So you're saying they finally made it to space. It took it they took do, nine do. took nine movies, but they yeah. made it to space. Okay, <laughs> they do. They fly a Pontiac Fiero into outer space <laughs> to stop to stop to stop a space weapon. Okay, <laughs> so that has been planted up in a satellite. So you heard it here. Yeah, hopefully. Sorry for the spoiler, but uh, but I, I will say, even if you know it's coming, it's still it's still good. So anyway, I don't know what my original point was with Inception, except that it is. You know, I was I was as amazed I was amazed by how great Inception was. Not amazed that he could make a movie that great, but just amazed that he could do something that audacious and that ambitious at that budget level and that they would let him. But, you know, it helps when you've got Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, DiCaprio, I feel like, is kind of a, you know, all of us who love ambitious cinema should probably get that on our knees and thank Leonardo DiCaprio every day for having the taste that he does because... You know, he he's enabled a lot of really great, interesting movies to get made via his star power that I think uh, would otherwise not see the light of day. Absolutely. And, and you know, a couple of things I want to comment on. And, and just speaking for myself, you said, you know, audiences are willing to follow Nolan. And I can tell you from, you know, The Dark Knight on, so 2008 all the way up to Tenet last year, at a very rudimentary and fundamental level. One of the reasons why I will continuously follow Nolan into the movie theater is because I know I'm going to see something I've never seen before. And that is, right. and that, and you, and you, and you, you, you touched on that. You said sometimes you're not even going to know what's going on, but you're mm-hmm. going to see things. And in, and in a lot of cases, it's really happening on screen. And I think that's one of the things I'd like to touch on before we, uh, you know, move forward. Um, is Nolan's use of practical effects whenever possible. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that's another interesting thing about Nolan is that he's both one of the most forward-looking directors and yet very, very classical and old-fashioned in the way he achieves a lot of his effects. And, and, uh, and I do think that has a lot to do with people's emotional response because I do think that subliminally, like, you know, the fact that he does use you know, models and miniatures and physical stunts and all that kind of thing, whenever possible. I mean, there was, you know, I remember reading, um, I think it was somebody who worked in the dark Knight who was a special effects person. And they said they had worked on romantic comedies that had more digital effects yeah. than the dark Knight did, <laughs> you know? And I do think that there that's, you know, I mean, look, I think all these tools, you can use them different ways and there's no, I'm not, I'm not an absolutist about, film versus digital or practical versus CGI or any of those things. I feel like they all kind of have their place. Um, but I do think that you can feel there's a weight in Christopher Nolan's movies. Cause I'll tell you the one thing that for me, CGI is there's two things that are really hard to do in CGI. One is gravity and the other is fire. 
like I never feel like fire looks realistic in CGI. It's very rare. But but I also think gravity. I just think like things do not things are created via, via CGI. Like they just don't feel like they've got the same weight on screen to me. And like when you think of a movie like The Dark Knight or The Dark Knight Rises, like those movies have weight to them, and they just do have a. There's a. I I do think the audience can sense it subliminally that they're not looking at pixels and somehow that is and, and and also i think it probably is better for the actors too you know i mean the performances in christopher nolan movies are something that don't always get talked about but they're always great and i think you know it's probably helps his actors that they're reacting to stuff that's really in front of him and that like joseph gordon levitt you know he's in a real spinning room and they're banging him around for six weeks in that room um you know, instead of just putting him on like a harness in front of a blue screen. And uh, so I think all that is very, very key to uh, Nolan's, the impact his movies have. Something as simple, I shouldn't say as simple, but in The Dark Knight Rises during the, the Wall Street heist when the, with the motorcycles and mm-hmm. there, there's a, there's a shot where Batman is on the, the bat cycle. Forgive me if I'm not calling it by the correct, the correct name. I just call right. it the bat cycle. <laughs> and there are, Police cars closing in on both sides, and there must be fifty police cars. And you're looking mm-hmm. at this shot because they're 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 sort of bottlenecking him in, and he has to go down the alleyway. And I think that's real. I don't think that's mm-hmm. I don't think that's a CGI. I think he probably really did get twenty, thirty, forty police cars. There's something about that that felt so real that I didn't question it for a moment. So, I mean, I'm just assuming it had to have mm-hmm. been a real shot, but it's just, the, the, you said it perfectly when you said there's, there's a weight to, to everything in his films. It's incredible. And not just a weight, but the other thing you get from doing it that way, because here's the thing, you know, it's not more, it's not any more expensive to get 20 real cop cars than it is to create 20 digital cop cars. I mean, that's the thing. Like if it was, if digital was cheaper, you know, all these, none of these movies would be costing two or three hundred million dollars to do. Like digital is not cheaper than doing it, than doing this stuff. So the only reason to do digital as opposed to real is, is it's, it's more in your control. And I think some filmmakers like that and some studios like that. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But, but what you lose by doing it that way is there's a certain uniformity that seeps in to movies that are all done digitally because of the fact that you have that control. Whether, whereas if you don't have control, one of those 20 cop cars might skid in a funny way and do something interesting that's a little different than how you planned it. And if you're okay with that, you know, your movie is going to have some interesting little flavors to it that are going to be different from the movies that are all like using the same digital templates and things like that. You know, it's like the, you know, a lot of times the best stuff in movies are the happy accidents. I mean, the sort of famous examples, you know, the, the, the great final shot of the graduate where Dustin Hoffman and Catherine Ross are in back of the bus and they go from being excited to kind of like, Oh shit, what do we do now? (laughs) That was an accident. That was because no, somebody, they couldn't communicate with the camera guy and they, nobody told him to cut. And so he just kept rolling and Hoffman and Catherine Ross sat there and were like looking awkward because they thought the scene was over. But then that ended up being the end of the movie and ended up being a great end of the movie. And so that's what I mean about like sometimes accidents can be the things that are great and that make the movie famous, that make it a classic. And you don't get accidents if you're making your whole movie in a computer. 
And I mean, you know, and I think Nolan, again, like a movie like Dunkirk, he is out there responding to the elements. I mean, if you watch like the making of stuff on the Dunkirk Blu-ray or you read about it, you know, it's like they're getting pummeled by all this crappy weather all the time and stuff. And on the one hand, you could say, well, that's an argument for digital because it's like that makes your life hell when you're trying to make a movie that way. But you feel that watching the movie and it gives it a life and a vibrancy that I think is harder to achieve on something that's all done digitally. I agree. Well said. So it needs to be, it can't be understated that Inception has a listed budget of 160 million and it made more than 800 million. So for, for an original property, that's not a sequel, prequel remake, not part of some extended universe. That is a massive massive box office take wouldn't you agree yeah unbelievable i mean it's yeah i mean the only thing more unbelievable than that and that we will get to is dunkirk which made like 500 million dollars or something worldwide and also was not based on any property and didn't have any stars in it like inception at least you had leonardo dicaprio you know um and and just Gordon levin people like that um but yeah no i i will forever be mystified and yet thrilled by the fact that again a movie is as complicated and audacious and original as Inception found that kind of global audience. Yeah. Uh, so then let's, let's get to 2012's The Dark Knight Rises. And I'm just going to go ahead and say this because I think this is sometimes, and I, for the life of me, I've never been able to figure out why. And I've gotten into many a Twitter feud for comments I've made uh, throughout the eight plus years of this podcast. Um, I think The Dark Knight Rises is an absolute masterpiece of a film. And it's one that I mm-hmm. saw uh, three times in two days. And it's if you were to ask me which one do I revisit the most, it's this one because I mm-hmm. uh, because this is such a film in which you know Bruce Wayne is not Batman anymore. No, as much as he wants to think right. he's Batman, he's not anymore. And it's it's there's so many underlying themes about sort of when it's time to to not I don't want to say give up but when it's time to accept you know your reality and the 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 reality mm-hmm. that you're living in and I think Thomas Tom Hardy as Bane and and dare I say Bane has become just as uh in the pop culture lexicon I even probably more so than the Joker character has there are so many references mm-hmm. to Bane now I'm I'm just kind of going over the place but I just want to again emphasize to people listening that I absolutely love this movie and it's one of my favorite mm-hmm. Nolan films, period. So, having said that, what was your anticipation for The Dark Knight Rises, especially coming off of, uh, you know, The Dark Knight and, and then Inception? Yeah, well, it couldn't, I mean, it couldn't have been higher coming off of those two movies. And I was the way with The Dark Knight that you were with Dark Knight Rises. Like, I saw it, uh, I think I saw it five times in its first week. You know, I mean, I just kept going over and over again. I was obsessed with it. So, yeah, so I definitely had high expectations for Dark Knight Rises. And I'm going to confess that the first time I saw Dark Knight Rises, I didn't really like it. Oh. And I think, but I think that is because, and, and, and I'll, you know, just quickly jump into saying that I now would agree with you that it's a fantastic movie. But I think there were two factors to me not liking it the first time I saw it. Um, one was just purely personal, which was that I had just gotten back from a film festival where my movie was showing and I was determined I was so dying to see Dark Knight Rises I should have probably just gotten a good night's sleep and gone to see it the next day but like I I had driven all the way back from Vegas from a film festival and like had been you know driving in the hot sun all day and was probably too tired to really go see a two hour and 45 minute movie Um, and then I think the other thing was that precisely what makes it great and what makes Nolan great in general 
is maybe what threw me a little bit the first time, which is that, like you say, it is not, it's a different kind of Batman movie. And I think we're so conditioned when we see sequels or movies or series that you're kind of going to get more of the same. And I love Dark Knight so much. I think I was wanting more Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises is a very, very different movie. It is like you say, it's almost like a midlife crisis kind of movie. Um, and it's also darker it is a darker movie than Dark Knight, which is saying something because Dark Knight is a dark movie. But I mean, in Dark Knight Rises, I mean, you know, it really uh, all the things they've been threatening in all these movies finally happen in terms of the city just descending into total chaos and anarchy. And I think. I was a little thrown on first viewing again because Bane is a very different type of villain from Joker. And I love the Joker so much. And, you know, Bane is seems in some ways to be more, you know, one note or whatever. Although I would not, again, seeing a movie again, I didn't have any of these feelings. This was just my first, uh, my initial reaction. And, and I also thought it was a movie where I did find the time frame to be, a little bit confusing in a bad way the first time I saw it in the sense that like, you know, usually again, again, I think this is just because I had all these expectations based on what Dark Knight was. And, you know, the previous two Batman movies no one had done and most comic book movies, they all have this like kind of ticking clock in the final act. It's always like about beating some kind of ticking clock. And this movie has that too, but it also has this like three months where the city's just kind of like stopped, you know? And I think that through all those things through me, and yet I would say all of those things are things that make it great. It's a weakness in me, not a weakness in the movie. It's a weakness in me that I wasn't, um, you know, that I was expecting it to be just more the same. And in fact, usually I bitch about the fact that movies are more the same. So I should have been the first person to be celebrating this. And when I saw it a second time, I was, and it did on second viewing, I thought it was just as good as dark Knight, And like you say, is one of his best movies. I, I will say again, I touched on it earlier that Gotham city seems enormous in this movie. Yeah. And because I, I yeah. picked out and just feel free to jump in. If I live, I picked out New York city, Pittsburgh, Chicago, Los Angeles. Is there another city in there? I mean, I mean, I'm picked up the sky, picked out the skylines mm -hmm. of, of many of these cities. And it's, I think it's, it's just awesome how Gotham, it's almost like Gotham City could be whatever city you want in America. <laughs> you know, like right. it's just, it's just, right. But just the scale of this film. And I don't know if you ever saw the behind mm -hmm. the scenes where they were shooting at the Pittsburgh Steelers Stadium. Like the amount of extras mm -hmm. he had in that stadium. Mm -hmm. Is just is just mind boggling, mm -hmm. mind boggling. I, I want to touch on something, and, and and by the way, I want to point out this is another billion dollar property. So the the return on investment for Warner Brothers working with Christopher Nolan, allowing him to make the movie he wanted to make, certainly paid off. And and I want to talk about I want to talk about one movie that was very quick to use Nolan. Uh, a huge part of the marketing. And that was when you saw the Dark Knight Rises in the theater, you saw the trailer for Man of Steel. Now, mm -hmm. if you watch that trailer real quick and weren't really paying attention, you may have even thought that that was Nolan's next movie, the way they marketed mm -hmm. it. Um, mm -hmm. to, oh, so much to the point where I went and saw Man of Steel midnight showing, I think it was June or July of 2013. And 
it was clear within the first six minutes of that movie that Nolan, and I knew Nolan wasn't the director. I knew it was Zack Snyder by that point, but it was very clear right. that it was not a Nolan film. And I'm just wondering right. if, if Nolan's name attached to the Man of Steel in a, I guess, an executive producer and story credit, uh, uh, was that mm-hmm. enough to get you to go to the theater day one? I mean, I went to see it anyway. I would have gone to see it anyway. And I, I don't think, you know, I learned a long time ago that if a director's name is on a movie that he or she didn't direct, that it's essentially meaningless. I mean, I, you know, I learned that as a kid when Steven Spielberg went through that period where he would slap his name on everything. And I mean, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to say something here that will, I'm sure, enrage many of your listeners. <laughs> but, you know, I, I learned that lesson when I saw The Goonies, which was, you know, not a good movie um, and had Steven Spielberg, you know, but it was like it was sold as a Steven Spielberg movie. And I went and saw that movie and I'm like, this ain't no Steven Spielberg movie. Come on. I mean, you know, that's just. <laughs> but that was absurd. Richard Donner trying to do a Steven Spielberg film, in my opinion. Right. And, yeah. And not, not yeah. pulling I it mean, off. And I like the movie. I like the movie. Yeah. I just recently yeah. watched no, it about fun. a week ago. It's- but, but one thing about that film, Jim, was I said to myself, this is Donner trying to do Spielberg. And, yeah. And, and, it, and yeah, I mean, I guess the good the thing you can say for Man of Steel is Zack Snyder isn't trying to be anybody other than Zack Snyder. So, like, it's not, it's, you know, uh, but anyway, I, yeah, I mean, I, I learned with the Goonies and then, I mean, there was this period, there was this period in the eighties where Spielberg would slap his name on like, you know, Harry and the Hendersons. I mean, batteries not included, whatever, like all these movies that he didn't direct and they were clearly, you know, and, and it's like, again, even a good director like Richard Donner, if he's trying to imitate Steven Spielberg, it's like, it just kind of points out that, oh, there's only one Steven Spielberg basically. And yeah, so Man of Steel, I never thought I, Honestly, until you just said this, I completely forgot Christopher Nolan had anything to do with it. Like, I'd, I'd for, totally forgotten that, that he was involved with that movie uh, at all. And at the time, I think, yeah, I don't think I ever, I think I just went to see it because I was interested to see, because I was a Superman fan as a kid. And I, you know, and, 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 I, and I like Zack Snyder. I, mean, I think Zack Snyder is an interesting filmmaker. Zack Snyder is somebody who I almost always like his movies better on second viewing the first time his, his movies. I'm always kind of mildly disappointed when I see them the first time. And then I see them again. And I'm like, Oh no, there's a lot of good stuff in here. But then that was the way I felt about that one. Okay. All right. That's going to bring us to 2014 interstellar. And by this point I had gotten to know you. We had, uh, mm-hmm. we had recorded, uh, I think a couple podcasts by this point and I was very much, okay. Multiple things. I'm just going to throw here real quick. One, obviously, this was the first original Nolan film since Inception. So it had been four years since we were going to get an original Christopher Nolan film. The, the trailers were incredibly vague uh, on purpose. He, I, I had no, really no idea what this film was going to be about. And I didn't mm-hmm. want to, I didn't want to know. Uh, yeah. By this point, uh, the least I knew, the better. Mm-hmm. And then I saw the film and I ended up seeing it twice in the theater. But that pales in comparison to how many times you <laughs> saw this film in the theater. Uh, do you want to update the listeners about uh, exactly how many times and how many different formats you saw this film in the theater? Well, I did a little experiment and I went to see it six times in six days in six different formats. Basically, the first six days it was playing. First week it was out because at the time, you know, there was a whole it's I mean, these are the kinds of silly arguments that movie nerds get into that nobody really cares about. But uh, at the time here in LA where I live, uh, you know, we've got these theaters. There's like the American Cinematheque, which controls like the Egyptian of the arrow. And then there's the new Beverly, which Quentin Tarantino owns and programs. And the new Beverly, you know, Quentin's big thing is he's a 35 millimeter film purist. He only shows movies 
on film and he's very absolute about like he hates digital projection and at least at the time he did and um and the egyptian and the arrow they would sometimes show dcps and there was all this like it was it was becoming it was almost like um you know, anti-maskers or something now. And in LA, it was like this crazy, like digital versus film argument that everybody was getting into. And I was always getting sucked in the middle. And, and like, and I, again, as I said earlier, I'm kind of platform or exhibition and capture format agnostic. Like I, you know, I, I like film. I like digital. I think, you know, it's all what you do with it. Um, but I would get harassed. I was doing a lot of work at the time with the American Cinematheque. And they would show a DCP, you know, the digital projection, which is the way most theaters show stuff now. They would show a DCP of Grease or Raging Bull or whatever. And people would be coming up to me yelling at me, like, why aren't you showing that on 35 millimeter <laughs> film, you hip, you blasphemer, you know, whatever. And it was all going around. So anyway, Interstellar, Nolan, and Nolan is a film purist for sure, uh, like Clinton. And Nolan released Interstellar in 70 millimeter film, 35 millimeter film. 70 millimeter film IMAX, digital IMAX, and then there were 4K DCPs and 2K DCPs. So it was released in six different formats. And Nolan's preferred format was film to the point that theaters willing to show it on film got the movie a couple days early. And so here in LA, there were some of those. Quentin at the New Beverly showed it in 35, and the Cinerama Dome showed it in 70. And so I decided, well, I'm going to do a little experiment, and I'm going to go see it in every one of these formats and see what's better. And and honestly, it was kind of a silly thing because what I learned, I really would have known probably to begin with, which is it's not really so much about the format as it's about where you're seeing it and who's projecting it. Because basically if you have, you know, like this theoretically, the 70 millimeter presentation of the Cinerama Dome should have been great. But that theater at the time had some kind of weird registration problem with their projector. And it was kind of like had this, and it had like, this black shadow that kept coming up on the side and stuff. And, but that's not really, it was kind of a phony experiment in a way because that doesn't really mean 70 millimeter is worse than the other ones or something. It just means like that theater didn't have their equipment up to date, you know, or whatever. And, um, and it, and it was, and like the weird thing about it was between the two digital, uh, between the 4k and the 2k digital presentations, I actually thought the 2k digital looked better which is kind of counterintuitive because it's lower resolution, but for whatever reason it, it did. So again, it's just kind of a weird thing, but so, but I saw the movie six, the, the, the upside of all that though, you know, I mean, cause basically in the end, it just kind of made me realize how dopey all these arguments are about all this stuff, the film versus digital thing that I get into with people. Um, but the upside was I saw this great movie six times in six days and it actually held up to all those viewings. And, and Interstellar is a really interesting movie because, you know, you say it's a Nolan original, which is sort of true, but it's not a movie that originated with him. You know, it was a movie that years earlier, uh, this producer, Linda Opes, she was she was friends or she dated or something with this guy who was like this big physicist. And they got talking about a lot of these complicated ideas about theory of relativity and stuff like that that are in Interstellar and decided to make a movie about it and hired Christopher Nolan's brother, Jonathan, to write the movie for Spielberg to direct. I mean, this thing was right. supposed to be, that was the original, the origin of it. it was Spielberg was going to direct Interstellar years earlier from a Jonathan Nolan script. And that never ended up coming to pass. I mean, Spielberg kind of famously flirts with like every script in Hollywood and he always gets him first because he's Steven Spielberg and then he decides not to do him and goes on to someone else. 
And that was what happened here. And like at some point, Christopher Nolan, you know, his brother had been talking about this script for all these years. And at some point, Christopher Nolan, when Spielberg wasn't going to do it, said, hey, do you mind if I take some of those ideas you have and combine them with some ideas I have and make a new movie? And that's what happened. I mean, like some of it was remnants from the Spielberg version. And then Christopher Nolan brought a lot of his own stuff to it. And I do think it's sort of in a way you can feel that a little bit in the movie. Like it's his most... I don't want to say unwieldy or ungainly, but it is like it's the one that goes kind of down a lot of interesting pathways that's a little less tight than his other ones, if you, if that makes any sense. And I don't mean that as a bad thing. Like I like I actually like the fact that Interstellar is kind of like a bunch of movies in one and then it kind of keeps rebooting every 45 minutes or so. You know, there will be like there's a point in the middle of the movie where all of a sudden it becomes Jessica Chastain's movie who you like haven't even seen up until that point. And then all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden it's like Matthew McConaughey's adult daughter becomes like her point of view in this movie that otherwise has had a very, very restricted point of view to Matthew McConaughey's point of view. So it kind of, it kind of takes these interesting shifts and twists and turns. And I think some of that is because it was a movie that had like different people working on it over the years. And it kind of ended up being this, a little bit of Frankenstein's monster, but again, in a good way. Like I think, and I think it's a very, very, I think like it's in some ways it's one of Nolan's most emotional movies. And I don't know if that's partly just because by that point he had four kids or if he was inheriting some of the Spielbergian nature of it or whatever, because it's a very, very, I think like the whole thing about this father leaving his, uh, children to go save the world, but by saving them, it means he's never going to see them again. I mean, that's a very, you know, um, it's a very emotional idea to revolve the movie around. This is one of the more thought-provoking films that I'd seen in in years, and, mm-hmm. and and I cannot recall a movie creating for me, at least for me, and I'm sure this resonated with a lot of people that are watching a, a a call to action to learn more about the science behind this movie because mm-hmm. everything in it, putting the, the 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 finale, you know, spoiler alert, the black hole finale, I'll call it, mm-hmm. uh, everything in it seemed plausible realistic and and you could tell that a lot of thought and uh collaboration with uh you know physicists went on to make this film yeah. as authentic and and i wanted to learn more and to this day i'm still you know i find myself going down youtube rabbit holes and and this movie i have this movie to thank for it you know this movie mm-hmm. really inspired me to want to learn more about you know astrophysicists and and it was just yeah it was an incredible film uh what were your thoughts just on the on the science behind this film? Yeah, I mean, I have kind of a similar reaction, and yet I have to say it is my my shortcoming as a Nolan enthusiast is my brain just like I will never fully understand his movies. Like even though I would say that Christopher Nolan, you know, is one of my favorite directors. I mean, really among directors of my generation or a little older, really only Tarantino would I put above him i mean in terms of my favorites like it's pretty much tarantino and nolan and then maybe paul thomas anderson and yet i don't feel like i will ever fully grasp everything there is to grasp about something like interstellar or something like tenet because i start reading that stuff and i just can't follow it i'm just not a science my brain is not a science and math brain and it just completely confuses me like and and i just accept that it confuses me and that's okay but um but I do think the thing about Nolan is, even when I don't understand it, I believe that he understands yeah. it. And I think this goes back to what you were saying about how, like, you kind of go back to his movies and you put your trust in him. I think one of the reasons that he continues to be commercially popular and accessible is I think people, even when they don't 
even when they don't totally understand something like Inception or Interstellar, you do get the sense that he understands it. He's not just messing with you, you know? Um, and I think that kind of angers people in a way, but, but yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I think, you know, he played a little faster from what I can gather. Once he got to Tenet, he was playing a little faster and looser with the science, but with Interstellar, it seems like everything was pretty much like, you know, pretty rooted in reality, which again, as I've said about his comic book movies and everything else, I think that's one of his great strengths that, that makes his movies uh, so compelling. And one of the things about that, like I remember in Interstellar, like, you know, there's certain scenes, uh, the docking scene as I'll call it, where when you see the perspective from outside of the spacecraft, there's no sound because there wouldn't be any sound. Mm-hmm. And, and, right. and I remember my, my brain had a hard time adjusting to that for the, for like, is there something wrong with the audio in here for a second? And, but, it, but then I remember there's, you wouldn't hear anything in space and just little details like that made me just go, I have to, I have to learn more about this. Now, let me ask you this. This, this brings up a, an interesting point. One of the notes I wrote down, and I wanted to wait until we got to interstellar before I asked you this question. I, I spent this morning, uh, with my coffee and my headphones listening to the original scores for the Nolan films and mm-hmm. Hans Zimmer being his, um, his go-to guy for most of these films. Mm-hmm. So that poses the question, and and there's no wrong answer here. But do you have a favorite original score for a Nolan film? Uh, I mean, I really like The Dark Knight for sure. You know, again, I, and I mean, I like all of them, and they're they're all very interesting. And I like the one that Hans Zimmer didn't do. I like the Ludwig Göransson one for Tenet quite a bit. Uh, but I don't know if I have a, I don't know if I have a favorite one. And you know, it's it's funny that you bring up music. It's it's another area where I don't feel like I've got the vocabulary necessarily to talk about in detail, but I would highly, highly recommend to people this book uh, called The Nolan Variations that's written by this guy, Tom Schoen, who's a great film critic. And this book, The Nolan Variations, has a ton of stuff. He interviewed Zimmer and Nolan, and there's a ton of stuff about the way they work together on the music. And it's absolutely fascinating because Nolan, like, often... um, was working on the music very early on, like even sometimes before shooting, as opposed to what usually happens is you make your movie, you put, you cut it to a temp track and then you show it to a composer and they do all the music after the fact. And Zimmer, you know, Nolan will show him like before he even is done with the script, he'll show him like a page synopsis of the idea of the movie and be like, start thinking about this and start thinking about what a theme would be or whatever. Or, in the case of Interstellar, Nolan said he wanted the score to be on an organ, which initially horrified Hans Zimmer. He was like, you got to be kidding me, you know, but he gave him like enough leeway and enough lead time. And he was able to kind of figure out how to make it work. But but anyway, I'd really recommend that Nolan Variations book for anybody who's interested, anybody who's interested in Nolan in general, but it's particularly if you're interested in seeing how the music works and how they um, put that together, because it's 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 really quite fascinating. But to answer your question, I mean, I. If going to a desert island, I'd probably take the Dark Knight score. I really like that one a lot, but um, but they're all pretty great. Yeah. I also do like David Julian's score for Memento quite a bit. Yeah, I, I just as I, as you were mentioning that, I pulled up the Nolan Variations on Amazon, and it's certainly readily readily available. Twenty dollars for a hardcover, which I'm going to be ordering here as soon as we're done. Um, <laughs> it, it says that it the, uh, it was published November third of 2020. So my question to you is: Does this film, does this book uh, include Tenet? Yeah, it goes up. It's it's includes tenant. It's up to the date. Okay, perfect, perfect. So, awesome. As of this as of this moment, it has everything Nolan's done in it. Okay, perfect, perfect. So let's go on to so you. I mean, obviously, you loved Interstellar. Interstellar. No, yeah. no question about mm-hmm. that. Um, and uh, like you mentioned, it did very, very well. Uh, it was mm-hmm. uh, so. Uh, 
you know, again, Nolan gets to just kind of do what he wants from this point on. And yeah. his his involvement with – how do I describe – let's just get into 2017's Dunkirk because here's what I was expecting from the film. And my expectations were, of course, subverted because it's Christopher Nolan. When the trailers for Dunkirk started to drop, I said to myself, well, this is going to be interesting. Because this looks and appears to me to be a straightforward narrative about the events that happened in Dunkirk. And I did a little research mm-hmm. about it and I said, okay, this is, this is probably going to be, uh, an incredibly epic, you know, war movie. You know, I remember being a little disappointed mm-hmm. that it was rated PG 13. I said, oh, well, if he's going to tell a World War II story, I think he, he should probably flirt with the R rating. These were, these were just thoughts that were going through in my mm-hmm. mind, in my mind. So. You can imagine uh, what's going through my my mind when I'm watching the film in IMAX, you know, the day it comes out, and I'm going, oh, Nolan, you did it again. This mm. is not a straightforward narrative. <laughs> this, is, yeah. this is him again. I saw the movie twice in one day. I had to. Mm-hmm. I had to. This is a movie that rewards you, uh, like most Nolan films, by rewards you watching it twice. And I, I – I, yeah. The first time I saw it, I was, I won't say I was confused, but I was just sort of like, this is all going to make sense at some point. The second right. time I saw it, I understand why Tarantino named it one of the 10 greatest films of that decade. Like, I think it mm-hmm. is um, immensely amazing. And again, yeah. looks completely practical. Your thoughts on Dunkirk? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's, uh, first of all, yes, the practical stuff is unbelievable. And it's, uh, you know, I, and I, I don't remember what I actually expected going in. I think maybe by the time I got to Dunkirk, I just kind of had learned like not to expect anything from Christopher Nolan because it's like I'm not going to know what he's going to give me. And and in the case of that one, uh, and I didn't have any of the issues as far as worrying about PG-13 only because I kind of feel like after Spielberg did Saving Private Ryan, it's kind of like he did that. And where do you even go from there with like the graphic violence of it it's almost like you you anytime you do that now you're competing with spielberg and it's kind of a losing battle but um but what's amazing about dunkirk is even with that pg-13 rating i mean i think the thing it does more than saving i'll tell you where i think dunkirk is better than saving private ryan is in a weird way dunkirk even though it's less graphic i think it takes you more into the visceral experience of what's happening than Saving Private Ryan does. And I think there's a simple reason for this, which is that Dunkirk strips everything out of the storytelling except the visceral experience. So, like, Saving Private Ryan, one of the things I don't like about Saving Private Ryan is the the kind of corny framing story that it's got. And just kind of, like, the whole, like, how laborious that movie is in terms of trying to impose meaning on everything. And like, cause you know, like they, like they can't, the, the people who made saving Private Ryan, and this is just a different way of looking at the world, but like they can't bear the idea that all of this isn't for something. Yeah. So there's this whole big narrative built around the action sequence to saving Private Ryan to infuse them with sort of moral and spiritual and patriotic significance. And and I'm sure that's what a lot of people who like that movie like about it. It's just not my cup of tea. Like the stuff in Saving Private Ryan that I think is amazing is just the experiential 
combat stuff is uh, is amazing in that movie, you know, and is what Spielberg is just a genius at. And Dunkirk, that's all the movie is. Like, you don't know shit about these guys. You don't know. There's no backstory. You don't know a damn thing about where any of these guys came from, where they're going. Really, I mean, you get a little bit. Like, the guys on the on the boat, on the Moonstone or whatever it is, you get a little bit about uh, the Mark Rylance character having a son who died and stuff. So I shouldn't say there's nothing. But for the most part in that movie, you don't know anything about those characters except what you were watching in that moment. And it gives the movie this sense that you've kind of dropped into the middle of it. It's almost like you're watching it's almost like you're watching a movie that had its first 30 minutes chopped off of it or yeah. something. You know, all the stuff that a normal war movie would do where they introduce you to all these guys and they talk about the gal back home or whatever. You know, it's like you don't get any of that. And I think that is a strength. I mean, I think that it's then there is this way that you kind of because he's not giving you those things, you kind of project yourself into the movie. And so when these guys are when the water is rising around their necks and they're about to drown or when fire is coming towards them or whatever, you really feel it in a way that I don't think you feel it in any other war movie that I can think of. Yeah, no. And and I will say seeing this in IMAX, the sound design is, this is, I mean, the sound design is always amazing in any film he does, but we're going to talk about his next movie after this when it comes to the sound design. But uh, just the opening shot when they're in the village in France and they're just walking, the soldiers are just walking and they're just, you know, kind of scavenging for whatever they can find, be it a, a cigarette butt or water. And the first volley of gunfire I, I I spilled my popcorn. I wasn't expecting mm-hmm. it. It was just it just caught me so off guard, and it was so loud, and it was coming from every yeah. direction. And I remember that was I was dialed in by that by that mm-hmm. point, and I was just like, oh, okay, of course, of course. So just just on a technical level, this movie, there's not a thing about it. And I know there's CGI involved in this film, but I don't know where. I, yeah. I can't I can't spot it. Um, mm-hmm. It's just incredible, just incredible. Yeah. And let's talk, let's look at Dunkirk just for a moment here. Um, so Dunkirk was made for an estimated 100 to $150 million budget. Uh, it made five, a little over 500 million. And like you said, didn't star anybody. I mean, you, yeah. I mean, he had Tom Hardy in the film, but did he really? <laughs> right. He was, he was, he was wearing a mask. He was like Bane again. He was wearing a mask the entire time. Except for the very end. I mean, it's it's nice to have Kenneth Branagh in for a moment, mm. but yeah, but yeah, no. And Tom Hardy is not a star the way Leonardo DiCaprio. Is yeah, a star. like guys like you and me might go see a movie because Tom Hardy is in it, but like mo- the 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 world does not go to a movie because Tom Hardy is in it. Um, you know, so it's like he's and like you said, you don't even see him. He's gonna he's got a thing on his face the entire time. So yeah, no. To me, the commercial success of that movie is the most amazing of all of them because it is like. You know, a World War II movie, again, not based on anything recognizable, no big stars. The star is Christopher Nolan. And so Nolan has basically, again, this is where the Hitchcock comparison comes in. Nolan has basically gotten to the point that Alfred Hitchcock was at in the 50s and 60s, where he's the star of the movie, and people will go see a movie because it's an Alfred Hitchcock movie, and they'll go see a movie because it's a Christopher Nolan movie. And there are very few people who... I think you can say that about him. And again, Tarantino to a certain extent, but even Tarantino, like his, he's, you know, he's never made a movie. I don't think that's made $500 million or certainly a billion dollars or anything like that. Like Nolan, it's a whole other level. Absolutely. We get to 
there'll be a bit of a discussion on this this his last his his uh, most recent film and let's mm-hmm. talk just a little bit about okay when we get to tenant much like you know inception and in interstellar the 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 least i know the the better I, I, that's the way mm-hmm. I want it, but I, I can't remember. I, I want to say it was, and correct me, maybe you saw that uh, I, when I saw Bad Boys for Life in IMAX mm-hmm. in early 2020. Uh-huh. I think they played the prologue for um, for uh, for Tenant, and mm-hmm. and I remember going, oh, okay, looks like we've got a. This could be a straightforward narrative. Hold on a second. Mm-hmm. Everything, everything's <laughs> go. Because here's the thing: is is sometimes I I, I want like a dark night where I can understand mm-hmm. everything that's going on, and I just want to see the mm-hmm. spectacle of Nolan. And mm-hmm. of course, you see the inverted bullet in the in the, yeah. and I'm like, oh shit, this one's gonna make <laughs> me put my thinking cap on. And then when the yeah. trailers for Tenant came out, I was like, the trailers are hurting my brain. I still right. want to see this movie. Now, I am one of a few people because, you know, say what you want about 2020. I was living, I'm living in Florida and Florida did not go into the harshest of lockdown procedures like other parts of the, st- uh, of the country and dare say of the world. And mm-hmm. movie theaters were open in August of last year. And I mm-hmm. did go see Tenant in the theater and I was the only one there. I saw an IMAX screening. Um, Mm-hmm. So uh, much like um, when you saw Memento, this was interesting. Mm-hmm. Much like when you saw mm-hmm. Memento, I was like of everyone in my circle, my circle of friends, my podcasting circle. I was the only one that saw Tenet and couldn't right. talk to anyone about it. And it was killing me. So did you? Get, when did you first get a chance to see Tenet and then just take me through your thoughts on the film? I think I saw it probably a month or two after you because I would see it at the drive-in. <laughs> we didn't have theaters weren't open here. And I remember talking to you when you had just seen it. And you were at that point the only person I knew who had seen it, I think. And then uh, it came – yeah, it came out here at a drive-in. So I went to see it at a drive-in, and uh, which was actually kind of a great way to see it. I mean, it was um, – because weirdly uh, – I know you mentioned we're going to talk about the sound – a lot, you know, a lot of people had this issue with understanding the dialogue and everything. In a way, seeing it the drive-in and having sound coming through my car stereo maybe was a benefit because it sort of flattened everything out in a way where I understood the dialogue perfectly. I didn't have that issue with it that a lot of people had, and and this is an issue people have had with Nolan's movies off and on for a while now. Like Interstellar, uh, he you know he is a, has a very aggressive sound mix um, where often the music and effects kind of drown out the dialogue dialogue and a lot of people complained about it with that but i know tenant got to a whole new level and tenant uh again i didn't have that experience and i really loved the movie when i saw it i mean i kind of again i think it is another one of those movies that teaches you how to watch it the first time you see it because then you watch it again and it is this kind of you know i i i kind of would if i had the technological know-how and patience i would love to load tenant into my computer and sort of re-edit it and reverse it you know watch it almost turn it into memento and watch it to see because my theory about tenet is that it does work perfectly as a kind of palindrome palindrome that loops back in on itself where the second half of the movie is essentially a mirror of the first half and i'd be really curious to watch it that way but but the first time i saw it you know i i kind of um spent you had prepared me a little bit you know it was probably good that you'd seen it for me because you you told me that when you watched it you had no idea what the hell was going on 
for a good portion of it. And then at one point it kind of clicked and you were like, whoa, this might be my favorite Christopher Nolan movie. And that was pretty much the reaction I had as well. And I've since seen it. I've seen it seven times now and I did get to see it. Uh, I saw the drive in twice. Then I saw it a few times at home. And then in the last month I've gotten to see it in actual theaters because here in LA they've been showing it in a couple of places. So I've seen it seven times now. And the odd thing about it is it's one of those movies like David Lynch's Mulholland Drive and there's a couple others that weirdly I sometimes understand less the more I watch it, which is a very, very strange thing. But sometimes I'll think I've wrapped my head around it and then I'll watch it again and there'll be something that contradicts what I thought. And then it's like, oh, shit, now I gotta watch it again. Um, But that's kind of part of the fun of it to me. Interesting thing, there's, you know, I talk about how many times I've seen Nolan films. Like I saw this one three times inside of a weekend. What happened where I was was I saw it at a, a Regal Cinema, an IMAX Regal Cinema. And yes, they were open. And then quickly Regal, the company, said, we're just going to shut everything down. So I didn't mm-hmm. get that opportunity to follow it up. Uh, mm-hmm. So I had to wait. I did see it. Then I had to wait for it to come out on uh, video on demand, which I want to say was like mm-hmm. December of, mm-hmm. of 2020. Yeah. I've seen the film. I don't know, six or seven times like yourself. And I'm still picking up on things every time I see it. And I consider this much like you, like much kind of like Dunkirk is very stripped down when it comes to the characters. Yeah. The the, the main character doesn't have a name. He's the protagonist. You don't know <laughs> right. anything about him whatsoever. And this is a movie that a lot of people have said they that, that this is like you said, the rubber band broke for, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. It's on HBO Max now, so I can just pick it up and go to certain scenes whenever I want to watch. Like like you said, something comes to my mind. I need to watch this part again. I need to see this part again. And I love that it's available on HBO Max now, but it's, it's not the same when you watch it on your phone. Um, mm-hmm. But what are your thoughts on on the general reaction that Tenet has received? Because I know there was a lot of criticism levied at at Nolan for really pushing to have this thing released in August. This is right here, released August 22nd of 2020. Mm-hmm. And do you feel like that even might have played a factor in some of the negative reaction the film had received? Yeah, I mean, that whole thing was very odd to me. The reaction were of, you know, as though he was doing something i mean i don't know i i you know i think with nolan sometimes with guys who are as big as him there's this weird jealousy that some people have um as though you know this is a guy who gets wherever he wants and people don't like that even though they sometimes like what he does with it and i think there was this attitude of like him demanding that the movie play theatrically and whatever was somehow this i don't know egomaniacal the thing or something. I, I, don't, I really don't know. I never understood it. I, 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 you know, to me, it was just like the guy loves movies. He loves movie theaters. He's trying to keep that experience alive. Um, but it did seem to color it in a certain way. I, you know, I do think I will say this. I, at, even though I love Tenet, the one thing I think it lacks compared to that a lot of his movies have, um, I will say, even, you know, even though I don't agree with the assessment of him as a cold filmmaker, Tenet's probably the coldest. I mean, Tenet is the one that gives you the least emotionally to hang your hat on. Whereas like Inception, the whole thing with DiCaprio and his wife, I think is very poignant. And obviously Memento has a lot of poignancy. A lot of the other ones, Interstellar has the father-daughter relationship. A lot of his other movies have some sort of emotional anchor at their core that keeps you tethered to them, even if you're not following like every specific plot complication. 
And the tenant, you know, is going for that with the stuff with Elizabeth Debicki and her child. But it feels, I will say in that movie, it feels a little bit um, artificial. And I don't know if it's, she, she's just such a like kind of icy presence that it, it, it's for me. And it's not, again, it's not Chris, it didn't really bother me. But I do think the movie lacks the one thing that some of his other movies had that maybe helped people glom onto them. Um, and so with this one, if you are having trouble understanding it, he's he's giving his spectacle that he always gives, which is fantastic. But it does like ha- it is missing like that emotional component. And so maybe it, it maybe that's part of why people weren't willing to go as far with him. I also think, frankly, that a lot of it does have to do with the fact that most people didn't see it in the theater. And I don't care what people say. You watch pe- movies differently at home than when you, you know, if you yeah. see a movie in the theater, you are, you are focused on it. And, you know, I often wonder when people say a movie, cause I hear people talk about movies having plot holes and things all the time. And I always want to ask them, does it really have plot holes or were you just watching it while you were texting somebody? You know, I mean, were you watching it while you were in the kitchen getting something? Were you, you know, were you checking Facebook while the movie was on in the background? Because, his movies are not movies you can watch that way and get the full experience. You got to really focus on them. It's so funny you say that. And my girlfriend's going to kill me if she hears me say this, but uh, you know, I'm the type of person like we were watching something the other day and it was something that I had seen before. I was introducing her to something. I can't remember. It was some, some movie on HBO max that she hadn't seen and she would get a text message and I would pause the movie mm-hmm. and, and she would be like, it's okay. You don't have to pause. I'm like, no, 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 you, yeah. you haven't seen this before. I'm, right. No, I don't mind if you answer the text message. So I, I understand exactly what you mean by by people yeah. watch it differently at home. Um, it's something else you said there about sort of the kind of the coldest about it. Like I'm looking at the characters, and this is incredibly minor spoilers for for Tenant. Uh, I would I hope that most people listening to this, but if you're this far into a Christopher Nolan retrospective, I would <laughs> I would hope that you have seen Tenant. Minor spoilers. You look at the motivations for the characters. Robert Pattinson's uh, motivation is that he is dear friends with the protagonist. You find that out yeah. you know, at the end. Like I said, Elizabeth Dubecki's motivation is the kid is her kid. Mm. Kenneth Branagh's motivation, you know, for why he's going to do what he's going to do is diabolical. And that one always Mm. sort of gets to me. He's going to end things because he's ending. I'm I'm trying to be a little bit vague. And I think Mm. that is just diabolical. But the fact is the main person that we're supposed to root for, we don't know anything about him. What is his motivation? Why was he in the CIA? Why did he do this? And that I will, I will, I will, I will fault the film for that in the sense that I understand the motivations of almost every other character except the one I'm supposed to be rooting for the most. And that that is mm-hmm. something that I've always kind of grappled with with this film. Yeah, it didn't really bother me, but I think it probably is has something to do with why this movie has divided people a little more than some of his other ones have and why the again, why the rubber band may have finally snapped. Um, you know, for me, for me, John David Washington's charisma kind of carries it through. Like I was still, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I love following him, him I, whether I, I knew that. Mm-hmm. I, I love the guy. I'm not, it's not, it's not a super knock on the movie. Believe me, I, I wouldn't have watched as many times as I did. I really like John David Washington in the film. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to make it sound like I, I didn't like his character. I just wish, I guess I would, I wanted more. I didn't mean mm-hmm. to cut you off there, Jim. I'm sorry about that. No, 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 no. I, yeah. No, I was, I, I think I was done. Before we we wrap things up here, um, obviously, we don't know what the future is going to hold, but throughout the course of 2020, uh, there became a, a, a tear, dare I say, in the relationship between Christopher Nolan and Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So much so that I guess it, it appears clear that his working relationship with the studio that has basically let him do whatever he wants for the past 10, 11 years is over because of some decisions that the, the, the company made regarding releasing films day and date on HBO Max. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering now, because everything we've talked about, the fact that this, that Nolan has been able to continue to play in his sandbox, a fully funded sandbox where he can do whatever he wants. And it, there has been, you know, strong return on investment with every project. Now, Tenet, obviously, it, it's listed as making a profit. Pro- a profit probably would have made more money had we not been under the circumstances we're in. But my question to you is, Jim, and this is all pure hypothetical. Is there another studio that will take on the Nolan, you know, agenda, if you will? Oh yeah, I mean, hundred percent. He's until he until he makes a couple that don't work financially. Uh, I think anybody's going to jump in. In the same way, it's like you know, Tarantino for his entire career, he had the Weinstein. You know, Harvey Weinstein was his patron who let him do whatever he wanted and make whatever movies he wanted. And then you know, then Weinstein had his downfall. And, you know, Quentin just went over to Sony and made Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and, you know, in my opinion, the best movie he's ever done. So, um, I think, and I think Nolan is in a similar, an even more privileged position, really, than, than Quentin. So, I think Nolan will be able to go wherever he wants. I mean, you know, the thing about Warner Brothers is I don't think that was going to be a hospitable situation for him anyway. I don't think it's a hospitable situation for anybody. AT&T drove it into the ground. I mean, they destroyed a hundred-year-old legacy studio i mean they they you know at&t came in to know what the hell they were doing had no respect whatsoever for the the filmmaking history of the studio uh basically destroyed every relationship the studio had with great filmmakers and and and, and then now and then the, they just sold it off to uh discovery channel yeah. so it's like warner brothers is like oh, it's not even uh, maybe i will be surprised but i think warner brothers the warner brothers we grew up with knowing and loving the warner brothers that gave us uh you know, Dirty Harry and the uh, and a Clockwork Orange and the Harry Potter movies and the Quint- you know, all the Clint Eastwood movies and all the whatever that's gone, that's dead. And you know the Christopher Nolan movies. So he was gonna he was gonna have to go somewhere else anyway, probably. But uh, yeah, I think he's until you know if he makes one, and and like you say, Tenet didn't make as much, but I think everybody allows for that. Is that was a pandemic movie? We don't know what it would have done otherwise. So I mean, essentially. His track record is still unbroken. I think. I think it, any studio in town is going to be willing to take a gamble on him until he has a couple that don't work. I mean, I think if he made if he made two in a row that were expensive flops, then he would be in trouble. But I think for now, he's probably we we're still going to get at least a couple more out of him, and hopefully more. Any word on what he's working on next? I that I do not know, and he's usually pretty secretive, and usually the things he makes have been germinating for a long time. I mean, but, you know, Inception was an idea he got when he was in high school. Uh, you know, he got that idea watching the Freddy's Nightmares TV show when he was <laughs> in high school um, and seeing the dreams within dreams and stuff. So, uh, so he, you know, a lot of his movies are things he tinkers with for a very long time before he actually, and Tenet as well. There were uh, germs of that idea that he'd been thinking about for years. So, so there's probably something that he's been thinking about for a long time that we don't even know about that is going to end up being his next movie. All right. All right. Now, before I end, I'm just going to ask you one question related to Tenet. And again, spoilers for the film, if you haven't seen it. Do you subscribe to the theory that Elizabeth Debicki's uh, son is actually Neil, Robert Pattinson's character? That is uh, completely fascinating. And I had not heard that theory. So now I need to watch the movie again. Yes. That's, uh 
I've never heard that theory, but that's a great theory. It, I, 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 I can't, I totally can't, have to watch it again. I, I can't take credit for that theory. It was one that I read, but I was just like, whoa. And then when you look at her son, it's the same hairstyle, same hair color and everything. And it's just like, well, of course, of course. And, and, wow. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Um, no, I, that did not occur to me. So now I, I'm, that's a fascinating idea. Yeah, I thought you might appreciate that. I, I almost text you about that, but I don't know why I didn't. Um, oh, that's right, because I think at the time I heard that, I don't think you had seen the film. So I think that's why mm. I probably <laughs> didn't. So, all mm. right. Well, Jim, thank you as always. These, uh, I love having these discussions. And I got to tell you, speaking of time, I think this is the longest that you and I have recorded one of these icons. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, lots to say on the subject of Christopher Nolan. Yeah. And we're still a half hour shorter than The Dark Knight Rises. So. Exactly. <laughs> so so there's part of me when I was part of me thinking about, I'm just going to chop this up and we're just going to play this. I'm just going to play different parts of this, you know, in no chronological order as a little nod to Nolan, which I <laughs> will <you> not. <laughs> um, people want to keep up with the, the work you're doing. How can they do that? Uh, they can either go to my website, jimhempillfilms.com, or I sporadically, depends on my mood at any given time, how active. I am on social media, but I'm on Twitter at Jimmy Hemphill. So that's usually I, I surface there every few weeks or so. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Well, I, I again, I'm, I'm grateful that you take time to to do these icon series. I know we've got quite a few more uh, that we would like to do. And we'll uh, we'll get I'll get back with you about that one as soon as possible. But, Jim, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It's always great to uh, preach the gospel of Christopher Nolan. Absolutely. All right, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.